right, so ready? Ready, Freddy. All right, so we do one, one two, two, three. three. And that should, be, that should do it. Makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Doctor Doom wears body armor to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I'm sick. But that's okay, uh, because today I'm joined by one of my benefactors uh, from the Two True Freaks Network, a really friendly guy, Scott Gardner. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? Oh, I thought you had another uh, another guest on there for a moment. <laughs> well, you know, I do have a lot of guests, but only two of them are benefactors. So, <laughs> I don't know if I've ever been described as a benefactor before. Quick, where's the dictionary? Benefactor, benefactor. Um, but no, <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, I'm looking forward to this. It's been a while. What, what was the last thing we did together? Was uh, I believe that was. Uh, I'm almost was one of the to, big hmm? books, right? I believe so, yeah. Um, and I think before that, uh, it was Spider-Man 3. So you're kind of, it's kind of a rare thing to have you on here, you know? So um, <laughs> it's always fun w- uh, when you can join in. And uh, basically what's going on is, um, right now I'm in the middle of a mini-series about something else altogether. But I felt like just taking a break. So rather than talking about more women in comics i decided that uh, i'd invite gardner onto the show so that we he and i can just shoot the bull for a little while and so um basically the idea that i had was that um he and i uh, basically could talk about among other things superman and one of the reasons that superman's kind of fresh on my brain right now apart from the fact i was just reading a crap load of superman comics um, it was also that I spent, I'm not kidding guys, five hours yesterday recording uh, uh, a show with a John, or it's actually going to have to be a couple of shows, with John M. Wilson. He and I were talking about the Man of Steel. So I know that's not really Scott's cup of tea quite as much, but it did get <laughs> me kind of thinking, you know, one of the things that 
you know, I mean, I, look, I like that movie, not criticizing it, but I would be lying if I said that that's like what I've always wanted from a Superman movie, you know? Right. It just isn't. And, I mean, it's okay on its own merits and, you know, whatever. We don't need to go into that because, you know, I think you've kind of said your piece about that. But um, <laughs> at the same time, though, it it, it just needs to be understood, uh, understood that, yeah, you know, it, I think it's a fairly enjoyable thing. It's not definitive for me. Um, what I've always sort of wanted, well, I say always, really it's been in the past maybe like five or six years. I haven't even really wanted a Superman movie. I wanted a very sort of Silver Age or Bronze Age type of young Superboy movie, and then, oh yeah, and then that could kind of grow and mature and change. And you know, maybe someday it could be Superman. But you know, you could just start it off, you know, kind of young, and then just sort of work it from there as a sort of science fairy tale type of a thing instead of this. I, dude, I'll be honest with you. I really don't know what Hollywood's boner with this really gritty realism is all about, especially lately. But well, I, is it is it Hollywood or is it certain facets of Hollywood? Because I'm not seeing you know. And the last thing I want to do is is turn this into a Marvel versus DC cinematic debate. But I'm not getting that from the Marvel stuff. I kind of went into Avengers two fearing it might go dark, mm-hmm. and didn't really feel like it did. I felt like it was pretty much. A, a straight up, you know, superhero action adventure movie, and that was refreshing to me because the uh, trailers I thought were kind of painting it that way, where, like, oh, this is where Marvel goes dark, and I'm I'm really glad that that was not the direction that they went with that. You know, they're not. You know, it's kind of funny. They uh, one of, one of the things I've noticed about Marvel's marketing is that I'm not going to call it dishonest, but it can sometimes be a little bit misleading. Um, I remember thinking that Iron Man 3 was going to be something a lot different than uh, what we actually got. It's interesting that you say that. Now, l- let me ask you this. Do you think it's, in- like, are they being deceptive? Or is it just our expectations are this and the product turns out to be that? Wh- which one do you think it is? Honestly, I'm I'm starting to wonder if you and I aren't to blame uh, for it, because I think this is something that you and I, especially, are a little bit sensitive to, um, just because of, you know, in our in our fan lives, you know, just the amount of stuff that we've had to put up with over the years. And right. I think that maybe your BS filter and my BS filter is so sensitive now that <laughs> we maybe sometimes project things onto a uh, onto a trailer or what have you that maybe isn't really all that appropriate. Uh, what do you think? You know, that, that I hadn't really ever thought about it, but I, I think you might be onto something there. The, the reason I asked you that is that I was just talking to someone the other night and going on and on <laughs> at length about how I, I find it really fascinating and, and pretty awesome that each one of the Marvel movies that as you say the the trailers often don't necessarily fit what the final product is mm-hmm. where the hell was i ta- oh i know what it was it was um the 200th episode no i'm sorry no it was uh we did a crossover episode on back to the bins with a brand new show that's going to be launching very shortly called third degree burn um, oh. so this was the crossover episodes we were talking about ant-man and expectations for ant-man 
And I was talking about the fact that uh, one of the things I think that the Marvel movies have done that I think is actually pretty clever is, okay, so granted, they're all superhero movies. That's that's your base. Right. But within that base, we have managed to touch upon different genres within that genre, if you know what I mean. What I mean by that is, like, take... Probably the best example I could point to would be Captain America the Winter Soldier. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much a spy thriller in the mold of something like Born Identity or James Bond or something like that. So, yes, it's superheroes in the fact that you've got a guy in tights as your lead character, but it's not a prototypical superhero movie. It's more spy thriller. And then with Guardians of the Galaxy, that was much more Star Wars. That was much more space adventure, space fantasy. Mm-hmm. And then you, you have know, the first Thor, Captain America movie. That was like a war movie. Really. War movie, exactly. Yeah, that was another example I used. And I think that's really fun. I think that's a really neat idea that I'm sure that they didn't come out with that right out of the gate because the first couple of movies don't really feel that way. But over time, they have done that. And so long as they continue to diversify their different franchises all within this cinematic universe and in each maybe not necessarily each movie but each one of those individual franchises has a different genre feel while still being a superhero movie you know the sky's the limit and they they can kind of keep that train rolling a long time so long as the quality stays up i think that's very clever and uh, and i i wonder at this point, it's got to be intentional, you would think, but also kind of who came up with that and, and how genius is that idea? That's what I'd kind of like to see. See, I, I don't necessarily want like DC to copy anybody. I want them to be their own thing. I think le- DC should be leading the pack. But I think that's a really uh, a, a good model to, to maybe try to emulate or, or try to take that idea and, and make it their own or something like that. But, you know, on the thing with Man of Steel, you know, I agree with you. I, I've said my piece and all on that. I don't really want to get into that other than to just say that what you said about, you know, well, I like it, but it's not really the Superman movie I, I wanted. Man, I've heard that from so many people, so many people. And the thing is, these days, the the wonderful times that we're living in as far as comic book properties and characters coming to the big screen, many of which I don't think any of us thought we'd ever live long enough to see some of these characters we're seeing come to the big screen. Like, see, Guardians of the... I mean, who the hell ever thought they'd see Rocket Raccoon in a live-action movie? Not I. mean, I. honestly. Yeah, not I. So, the thing is... You know, and, and this is just me, you know, standing at the pulpit for a moment. But, you know, we don't have to settle anymore. Those days, in my opinion, are long over. The, you know, because there was a time, and I'm sure you remember this. Of course. Where we had to settle for whatever the hell Hollywood churned out because, well, that's all there's going to be. So we might as well go and watch it and we might as well, you know, grudgingly accept it. And, I think those days are long behind us now. And so, yeah, that, you know, that was another reason of mine to, you know, as much as it pains me not to have 
gone to see a Superman movie, that was another one of my reasons why I didn't. Because it's like, well, I, I know this isn't what I want, so I, I can skip this one. And, you know, I would just put that out there to other people. You know, if, if you suspect that the product is not going to be what you want, then why do that to yourself? You know, you, you have options now and you don't have to settle for anything. If they're not giving you what you want, the, the worst thing you could possibly do is give them money for giving you something that you don't want. Well, but. and, you know, I, I very much agree with that. And one of the things, like, I remember I was sitting there in the theater watching that movie, Man of Steel, and thinking, you know what? Scott, being the fan that you are, I truly do think that you'd enjoy, like, the Krypton stuff there. I don't think you'd really mind any of that, but... You know, it does feel like there are, and I, I don't know if it's necessarily intentional on the part of these movie companies that, or I guess I should, I should say specifically Warner Brothers. I sometimes wonder if in their haste to differentiate themselves from Marvel, you know, in the marketplace, which is a good business uh, decision. Right. Are they maybe going too far with it? Too far, yeah. No, I've, I've had that thought myself, is... You know, in in an effort, as you say, to to make it very clear that, yeah, maybe we're in the same business as far as they're making superhero movies. We're making superhero movies, but our flavor is going to be completely different from their flavor. And I can appreciate that. I, I kind of want that because in its pure comic book form, as JLA Avengers very aptly demonstrated they do have very different flavors, these two universes. So I do want that. But yeah, I think you're onto something that I think possibly they, they push the pendulum just way too far. That, that they've gone so far beyond it that not only are they completely different from, from Marvel movies, but they're also very different from their own roots to a point where it's kind of hard to even identify with what they're doing. And I think that's where you get that, that fan backlash where where you know, some of the, the hardliners are going, Oh, this isn't my Superman or this isn't this, or this isn't that. And you, and you get that, that fanboy reaction, that negative reaction. And I think it's kind of foolish on their part not to re-examine. I, I don't know about anybody else, but I feel dismissed when it comes to what DC is doing with their characters, particularly Superman. Uh. And that's a painful feeling, you know, when, when you have been a part of the financial mechanism that has shored any property up for, you know, decades. Mm-hmm. To suddenly be treated like your opinion is next to nothing, that that hurts. You know, I mean, well, <laughs> that's, that's the best also, way I can put it. It just does. It just hurts. It's like, wow, I have completely wasted my time, money, and life on this when you know I'm really not even a cog to them. Well, and like the thing is, you know, my Superman fandom goes back so far. I truly don't remember when it started. Yeah, I mean, me I, either. I would almost venture a guess that I must have come out of the womb with like a DVD of <laughs> Superman the movie tucked under my arm or something because <laughs> I don't remember, you know, the first time I ever laid eyes on him. It's just he's literally always been there. Right. And so, you know, I I, I don't want this to sound as snooty and as, and as elitist as it might, but 
anytime uh, a new movie or a new TV show or a new animated show or whatever Superman comes out, it's going to attract somebody who's completely new to Superman. It's, I think it's a, a statistical inevitability, right? Somebody right. who's kind of just ignored Superman all their lives says, hey, there's something here that I knew nothing about, and I want more of this. And I just kind of feel sorry for the people who glommed on to Superman through... I think maybe the best example at this point is probably going to be Man of Steel, no offense. Um, and so th they said, okay, this is a character that I want to see more of. And, you know, whether people love Man of Steel or whether they hate it, the character in the comics, the New 52 thing, nothing like the character in that movie. Nothing at all. And it just kind of makes you wonder, you know, what is the point of uh, of all of this if your comics are so far away from what your movies are doing. Like, one of the things that really blew my mind uh, when The Dark Knight came out, because, you know, we I think by that point we were all kind of familiar with Marvel's mechanisms and their marketing and all of these things. Anytime a new Spider-Man movie comes out, there's usually going to be a Spider-Man number one of something on the shelf. And here comes The Dark Knight, and it was Dick Grayson in the comics that was, that, that was Batman at the time. If you think about how weird that is, I mean... You know, this is arguably the biggest Batman movie that's ever been made and will ever be made. And DC never even tried to capitalize on that. That's kind of weird, isn't it? Yeah, I, I never even occurred to me, but yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I have long said that one of those things that really bugs me a lot is when they retool the comics based on you know the the latest often flash in the pan version of of a character from another medium be uh, it tv or or movies or whatever yeah but i do think that there is a a, a good way to have synergy and a, a piss poor way to have synergy i think marvel's done a very good job up till recently now i've seen a lot of news articles that give the impression that they are actively trying to make the the comic book universe the marvel cinematic universe i think that's a huge mistake i hope that's not really true but as i said there's there's good ways that you can have synergy between the two mm -hmm. so you don't necessarily retool the comic to reflect whatever the other medium is but you certainly would love to ride that wave so even if it's just something as simple as I can remember when the Hulk was a smash hit on television, the the comic was not a thing like the TV show. Mm -hmm. But all the comics set on them, you know, starring you know Marvel's newest TV sensation or whatever it said on there, just to remind you, oh yeah, that guy that you love on TV, this is where he comes from, mm -hmm. and. You know, so just doing something like that and making sure that the that the version that's in the comics right now, while that character is a big hit on screen or on TV, isn't too removed. So yeah, it, you know, now I'm I have not kept up with Batman comics in a long time, but if you're saying that while Batman's a smash runaway hit at the at the theater and the Batman that's actually on the page in the comics is a completely different person, mm -hmm. then somebody's asleep at the wheel at DC because that shouldn't ever happen. 
because um, I know that there was a lot of speculation about uh, when they've changed other characters, you know, when, when they've had uh, other characters assume the mantle of a hero like, say, I don't know, like Captain America or somebody or Thor, you know, were they going to change them back in time for when the comic comes out and that sort of thing? And I believe they have for the most part, haven't they? Yeah, the best example I can think of was... Um spoilers uh the uh, death of bucky in um mm-hmm. uh, fear itself uh the, the death of bucky i think came out like and we're talking like uh the cover month now uh came out the month before the f- uh the first captain america movie did just mm-hmm. in time for steve rogers to uh you know uh, basically reclaim the throne triumphantly reassume the mantle yeah, yeah. and I, I didn't see that as being as you know as uh, exploitative as as I might have, simply because you know for whatever fear itself was and wasn't as a story. Uh, the death of Bucky in uh, in that in that story, I mean, he didn't just die; he got the shit killed out of him, and um, you know that's that was a hell of a way to go, and it kind of galvanized. I don't want to get too too much into the blood and guts of the story, except to say that it galvanized the heroes into saying, okay. Shit just got real. Now we're really going to go for it, and we're going to turn the tide on this thing. And, you know, the fact that it worked with the movie's marketing strategy as well, which I'm sure was maybe the real driving force, it felt organic to the story. And so um, that's – it's just one of those things. Look, I'm a lifelong DC guy. DC born, DC bred, when I die, DC dead. But I got to tell you, you know, for I would say at least since – I want to say that when I first started really noticing it was like around 2003, 2004. Marvel just had the, the it's like they'd cracked the code somehow, and it felt like DC being maybe the fact that it was just a separate company from Warner Brothers never really had that same insight into the market, you know. And now right. that they finally got that that. There is a little, a lot, as you say, a lot more synergy between the two, or at least superficially, there's a bit more in that it's all managed under one umbrella, supposedly, DC Comics and DC Entertainment. Mm-hmm. What they're actually churning out is so far away from what I want to see from Superman right now. Like, I don't know if you ever read that, um, that Boom Studios uh, comic book series called Irredeemable. Yes. Yeah, I did. Well, the Superman, what he reminds me of is uh, Max Damage from um, the uh, Incorruptible spinoff series. Mm-hmm. He looks kind of like, I mean, give the guy a leather jacket and he's pretty much Max Damage. And, you know, he's kind of this two-fisted, cigarette-smoking, hard-living, uh, former supervillain turned superhero. Because, damn it, somebody's got to be a superhero around here. It's like, mm-hmm. wow, this is your interpretation of Superman? Like, really? Like, that's your move? And... I'm not trying to rant at you or anything, but it's, you know, it's, it just feels like we've got, you know, this is the probably like, as far as like marketing is concerned, this is maybe one of the best opportunities that the DC as a comics company has ever had. And it, it just feels like they're just pissing it away. That's what it feels like now. Oh, I, I agree with you. It, it's funny you bring up the whole thing with, with irredeemable and incorruptible, because I did read both of those uh, start to finish and there were several times while reading it, I kept asking myself, why am I reading this? Why am I kind of digging it? And why isn't this pissing me off? Because I don't like 
these type of things historically speaking you know when when it feels like somebody's taken a cheap shot at superman mm-hmm. but the thing is the the thing i why i think ultimately i i did kind of dig it was that and, and it's funny cuz i was just talking to our buddy michael bailey about this mm-hmm. i'm much more forgiving if you want to play with the archetype of superman so long as you're not playing with Superman, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So if you know if, if somebody wants to come in and they want to write an evil Superman story, or a story where Superman landed in Russia as opposed to America, or Grant Morrison wants to smoke a whole lot of weed and write one of his nonsensical bullshit stories about Superman, but it's in some else world somewhere that I can just not buy, I you know I'm much more forgiving about that than I am when in the mainstream uh, mainstream incontinuity Superman is fiddled with to a point where I don't even recognize this character anymore. That's the difference for me. So this stuff that they're doing right now, you know, that's fine. That's, that's perfectly all right. That's valid somewhere else. Uh-huh. But where's my guy? my guy's not getting any representation anywhere right now. And that's what really bothers me. You know, you were talking about having that thought of kids today, essentially. I've had that thought a lot lately. You know, I've had that thought a lot lately, not only as a parent, but, you know, as a guy that probably sometime in the next 10 years or so will probably be a grandparent. Mm-hmm. You know, I that bothers me that... You know, there's going to be people that potentially, anyway, are, are going to grow up without the real Superman. And also that there are going to be people that are going to grow up and rather than hold a, a true and pure version of Superman as their Superman, they're going to grow up with some of this current shit as their perception of what Superman is. And that's just sad you know so sad that that really that's going to be you know their their ideal you know i liken it to i don't know you know it'd be like suddenly you know mickey mouse is is, you know a a grunge tattooed you know pot smoking hippie and all that and and you know It'd be the same thing. You're going to take this pure image and completely sully it and market it. And then there's going to be a a whole generation that's going to grow up not really knowing the difference. And gosh, that's, you know, that Mm -hmm. is just so sad. Because Superman, to me, you know, he's one of those last bastions. You know, he's one of those last things that you can hold up as you know what this is good this is wholesome this is pure and i can enjoy it you know at five or 95 and i just think the fact is right now you can't i wouldn't share this current stuff with a kid yeah any more than i would hand them a, a playboy magazine i wouldn't hand them some of the most of the current dc comics that are coming out how sad is that, that we've taken this medium and pushed it so hard that we wanted it to grow up, grow up, grow up, grow up, to now there's a point where you know, we, we have completely left the children behind. Right. 
there's got to be a happy middle ground in there somewhere. And there's certain characters I maintain, Superman being first and foremost, that should never leave the children behind. I don't want to see him written for children, don't get me wrong. But at the same rate, when a child can't, you know, enjoy a Superman comic or, or a child can't go to the, the theater and see Superman on the big screen then something's wrong yeah, Some, some, you know, something, something's broken no something is yeah badly broken because i mean for those of us old enough to have lived it you know how how fundamentally a part of your childhood is that image of superman saving the helicopter you know in superman the movie you know, how ingrained is that in your child memory? How, how big a part of your childhood is that? And so, so suddenly, you know, that same character, you know, to my way of thinking, just a few years later, because it, it just doesn't feel like it's been as long as it has, suddenly you're putting products out there that I, I would, I'd be ashamed to take a child to to see and it's supposed to be the same guy right and i just don't get that you know how are we so far away uh from that and i I think that there's a lot of reasons for it i I, you know of course it's all speculation but i you know i speculate that there's a lot of reasons for it and i think it, it essentially comes down to that you have you know the handlers the the current people in charge they I think it's a strange combination of they don't understand the character. I don't think they particularly like the character. I I think that they're trying to do something else with him. And in this effort to, I don't know, make him cool, make him relevant, make him viable, make him financially lucrative are destroying the essence of what he even is in the first place. Well, the question I usually ask people is, if you had absolute control over Superman as a, I guess, like as a corporate entity, and your, an, your, your biggest ambition was to destroy this character, everything he represents, and, you know, basically everything, everything it is that people love about him, what would you do differently? What would I do differently than they're doing right now? Yeah, I mean, if, you're, <laughs> if, if, if that was your goal... What would you do that's any different from what they're already doing? If the only, uh, the only other thing I could think of that they could possibly do at this point that they're not already doing was to to cease publication. You know, yeah, pretty much. But within the model of okay, you have to destroy this character overtly yeah. while still you know keeping a monthly book coming out. Then yeah, I can't think of much more different than you could possibly do because essentially my first thing, if my assignment was to destroy this character, I'd do much what they're doing right now. I would turn him completely backwards. I would go from being, you know, this symbol of of hope and white light essentially to dark, gritty, evil, scary. You know, and yeah. that's what I see. I'm looking at this the the imagery that's. You know, I don't. I definitely don't read the new stuff that's coming out, but I'm seeing what's coming out, and I'm looking at just the imagery, and I'm going. You know, a, a, a small child wouldn't. For one thing, they wouldn't. I don't think want to pick that up, but I think they shouldn't pick it up because he looks 
scary. Right. You know, he's scowling and you know his eyes are often red. And now, you know, there's that image that's out there that just makes me want to puke where he's dressed in a, in a T-shirt and jeans and his fists are all bloody like he's just pummeled somebody into the ground. I'm like, what what the hell is that? Even if Superman had to, you know, be put into a situation where he had to fight somebody, maybe even kill somebody, I still don't think that he would do it that way to where at the end of the fight, he's got, you know, bright red blood dripping off of his fist. What What is that? How does that even slip past whatever quality control filters are in place at Warner Brothers right to where that image is even out there you know one of the things that um that I, I I've been wanting to say to you for a couple of years now uh, <laughs> and I've you know it's just the, the opportunity never never really came up it was just never really a subject but uh hear me out before you say no okay <laughs> if what you want is Superman as a sort of pure, virtuous, aspirational figure. It didn't get a whole lot of play among some in our fraternity, but there there was a comic that was coming out for a while where that was pretty much exactly the type of Superman that they were publishing. And that was Smallville Season 11. And as I read it, what I came to realize is that this is not just a Superman comic. This is very... this It was starting to become sort of an alternate DC universe. And it was very similar, um, I, I guess as far as uh, characterization and other things, to the pre-Flashpoint uh, DC universe. You know, there were a lot of similarities there. It's not, it's not exactly perfect because you know there were certain, there were certain things that the show had to do, that ultimately the comic was just kind of stuck with. You know, like for instance, their choice of Flash. It was, it, it's just the way that things turned out. But there's a lot more going on with with that version of Superman, it's actually, strangely, I think you'd, I, at the very least, I don't think you'd hate it. Now, whether you're, whether or not you would fall in love with it, I have no idea. I certainly don't think it would, it would inspire you to want to go back and watch the show, but I do think you'd enjoy at least the Smallville Season 11 comic, because it's not, it, you know, there is flying, he's in the outfit, he is Superman now, and he does have this uh, supporting cast that I, I think you'd, you, you're probably like 95 uh, percent familiar with most of them and it really felt especially towards the end like this was an alternate dc universe that was more in line with uh, certainly with what i want and from what it sounds like it was a lot closer to what you want as well and uh anyway it's just something to think about if you're ever at uh your lcs and you see uh, a season 11 trade on on there at the very least i don't think you're doing yourself a disservice if you were to just flip through it and just try to get some sort of an impression from it I'm, again, I know the, I know your views on the show, so I'm not I'm not recommending that. Just the comic. How long did that run? Um, or is is it still running? Uh, no, I think it ended, and that's pretty much the end of it. Um, I, and I think the reason for that is because DCE wanted to clear the decks of anything Superman media that wasn't directly related to Man of Steel. That I think is why it ended. But it, right. it ran for. Uh, let me think. It, well, it came out. There had to be, at least be thirty-something issues. So hmm. um, I don't think it's. Uh, 
the point is you've read more worthless comics than that, you know. There's uh, so at the very least I don't right. I don't think you'll hate it. So anyway, uh, and again, I know what your your views on the show are, so I don't want you to feel like I'm you know trying to provoke something here. Cause I'm not. Well, no, I, I mean because I, I you know you're not the first one that I that I've heard say good things about that series, so maybe it, it is something that I need to take a look at. I mean, I have multiple issues with the show, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I know that you know you and I have discussed this before, so I don't want to you know beat dead horses, but right, you know something. You know, I've, I've listened to a, a lot of your coverage of Smallville, and while you haven't converted me, you've given me food for thought. And one of the things, I, I think it was one of your very earliest episodes, you were talking about, uh, you know, the, the show, and I, I it sounded to me like you were a little bit baffled by why... Uh, it, the show gets such flack from you know some of the the you know the the super you know the people that are clearly Superman fans but just don't embrace the show, and you were drawing a lot of parallels between Smallville and pre-Crisis Superboy comics. A lot of parallels I'd I'd frankly just never caught myself, and so it was food for thought. But this comic sounds interesting in the idea that, okay, you know, he's flying now, he's he's in the costume, he's Superman, mm-hmm. unabashedly. Right. That, at the, at the core of it, uh, amongst all the other issues I have with the show, the core of my problem with the show remains that the show ran ten seasons and never pulled the trigger. And that's essentially my problem is that it it comes down to you're doing something that you're claiming is devoted to this, yet it kind of comes off like you're kind of ashamed of this, like you're just not willing to go that far. So I liken it this way, mm-hmm. you know, because it's a show with comic book roots, let me put it to you this way, as close as it may be to Superboy... And as I say, you, you're the one that got me to realizing that there are a lot of similarities to Pre-Crisis Superboy. Pre-Crisis Superboy is one of the characters I, to this very day, love very much. But I would not have sat through 120 issues, which is what 10 years of comics is on a monthly basis. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have sat through 120 issues of Superboy if he'd never become Superboy. And, and that's kind of my my problem with it is that you you ran ten seasons, but how did you run ten seasons and and never never be the guy, you know? So to me, that show would have worked so much better if say season I don't know at the very latest five give him give him you know his freshman sophomore junior and senior years in the first four seasons and then he goes off to college and becomes something in the middle you know either superboy or novice superman going to college kind of like the superboy tv show is trying to do or you know what I, you know the point i'm trying to make yeah. it's like they just because there were times they were so close, I, you know. I, I I grudgingly enjoyed the uh, you know the JSA episodes and everything. Um, there were elements of those I liked a lot, but the thing that uh, that kind of sullied it for me is here you've got 
you know, a great looking Dr. Fate and some of the other characters that they pull in Mm -hmm. and you're getting this, this major geek high and then they show you Clark and it's like just that slap in the face reminder. Oh yeah. He's wearing a trench coat. (laughs) It's like, what, what the hell is that? So, you know, I don't know if I'm making any sense, but I just, you know, the show had a lot working for it. If it, if it had just simply pulled the trigger and, and I'm to this day, I remain baffled why that was. I, I don't know. I, I'm cause I've heard so maybe you would know. I mean, I, I've heard so many different stories. I've heard that it was Tom Welling himself saying, uh, uh-uh, I ain't putting on no tights. And then I've heard that it was actually part of the, the mandate of the show is that, well, it's about Superman, but it, it's not really about Superman. So no, he's not going to be in it. So I don't know what, what do you think? Well, um, as you say, that that really was uh, the mandate uh, that they had a defined endpoint. To them, the end of the show is Clark becoming Superman. Clark becoming Superman is the end of the show. The two are one, and so it was one of those things that I I, I would almost I, I'm not trying to be sarcastic about it, but you know, after the 500th time the showrunners say, yeah, well, that's going to be the end of the show is when he puts on the outfit. One of the, one of the things that you can take away from that is possibly that he's not going to become Superman until the end of the show, whenever that might be. I got you. No, no. I mean, no, you don't come across as sarcastic about it because I I guess I just never, I either never heard that or never realized that, that that was the intent of the show. Maybe if I'd known that, from the get-go, maybe, maybe I would have been that much more forgiving about it because in a weird kind of way that that makes a bit of sense. Maybe retroactively it seems that much more... Um, I don't know what the word would be, but I'm, I'm sure they never realized that they were going to go 10 seasons. So if they had gone, I don't know, say three seasons or four seasons or something, and then they end with that... Again, I think I think that's you're you're able to be or at least I am able to be a little more forgiving about that because it'd be like, okay, that was Clark Kent the high school years. Mm-hmm. You know, but ten seasons. Yeah. How how friggin' old was Tom Welling by the time those ten seasons was over? I think he was uh like thirty. He was thirty trying to be twenty uh twenty five. Hmm. So I mean it's not no, really it's... like that. I don't know. It's all in how you look at it. It is in how you look at it, because, you know, now that you say that, if that's true, he was 30, then, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't be so hung up on this, because, in theory, I think Chris Reeves' Superman is supposed to be about that age, because he graduates high school. Mm-hmm. Suppose, well, he was what? He was... The way- when he gets to the Fortress of Solitude, Jor-El says he's reached his 18th year, and then he tw- spends 12 years screwing around in hyperspace or whatever the hell they're doing. And then when he comes to Metropolis, becomes Superman for the first time, he's 30 years old. So that's his first time publicly in the costume, too. So I don't know. Maybe it's just something I need to get over, I guess. I never really thought about it before. Well, uh, to me, you can have Superman's public debut anywhere between the... T- it- and this, I'm speaking in ideals, okay? In a perfect right, world, right. he would, he would basically become Superman anywhere between the age of 21, and uh, to pick a number, 26. You know. Now, it, I, I think what 
far be it from me to crawl inside of Richard Donner's head and try to, you know, explain his vision for him. I'm sure he had his reasons for doing that, but I don't see the, uh, honestly, what's the difference? 25, 30, it's okay. You know, but um, I, I'm just, I, what I always took from this was that the burn Superman probably became Superman. Pro what, like, what would you say? Like 22, 23, something like that? Burn Superman? Yeah. You know, I'd have to go back and take, because he gives a sort of a half-assed timeline in that, because Lois Lane makes specific references to how much time has passed in stories and everything. But yeah, on a, on a guess, let me see. Goes to journalism school. You would think journalism school takes at least, what, four years? Mm -hmm. So yeah, 22-ish, I guess. Yeah. Something like that. Which, to me, makes more sense. The earlier he can be Superman, the better, especially if he never was Superboy, as in, you know, Man of uh, Burns, Man of Steel, or, or Smallville, or something like that. Um, there was something else I was going to mention, and now the idea is gone. Oh, I know what it was. Um... You know, I've been accused before, and <laughs> frankly, my friend, I think you were one of my accusers in, a, in an earlier episode, or at least I kind of interpreted it that way. Oh, no. That, you know, that, that I, I hold up Superman the movie as, as, you know, this completely perfect, flawless vision of the character, and while that is, you know, it's my favorite movie, and I'm, I'm unashamed in saying that... Mm -hmm. You know, it has its problems, too, and I'm I'm not blind to them. I mean, there are certain things that even as much as, I, you know, that movie is, is a beloved favorite of mine, there are things, because that whole thing with the 12 years, right since I was a kid, has always kind of bugged me a little bit, because if Jor-El's right, and essentially he and Kal-El go off for 12 years to explore whatever the hell that scene's ultimately supposed to be about, I guess exploring basically the nature of what it's going to mean to be Superman, then when he comes back, he's a man 12 years out of step with time. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So now you've taken this guy, and now he's double alienated, if you know what I mean, because one of the things that that movie, one of the legacies of Superman the movie, in my opinion, mm -hmm. is I think in... You know, if please somebody call me on this if you think I'm, you know, rewriting history. But I think Superman the movie is one of those things that you can definitely point straight to for kind of starting that idea of Superman the alien, if you know what I mean. I don't remember that being a huge part of Superman when I was a kid. Now, clearly, he cherished his Kryptonian heritage. He lamented the death of his real, you know, Kryptonian parents. He, he embraced being Kryptonian and all that. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking just this sense of of he lived among us rather than he was one of us. I don't really remember that from the comics as a kid. I think that's something that kind of, in, in my mind anyway, kind of came from uh, Superman the movie. Mm -hmm. So now you, you have Superman the alien... And now you're going to double alienate him by, by taking him off planet for 12 years and then popping him back. Because the very next scene we get, 
oh, here he is. He's going to work at the Daily, you know, and that's never explored in the movie. It's kind of just washed away. You're, you're, it's it's a, just a throwaway piece of dialogue with Jor-El. But if you stop to think about that, how does that work? How does he even score this gig at the Daily Planet if instead of going off to journalism school, he actually went on a 12-year space journey? Um, <laughs> you know? No, yeah, and I, I agree with that. Um, you actually, you, you threw a lot of stuff out there. Uh, when I first started my show, one of the uh, things I wanted to do, um, look, I assumed I was going to have, if I was lucky, like six people listening, right? Because I figured, well, <laughs> uh, two true freaks, just one of the guys, views from the long box, they pretty much got everybody. So I'll be lucky if six people are listening. So I'm just going to make sure that I never, if I have to trash talk somebody, I won't say, I won't mention them by name. Well, that was then, this is now. And now, <laughs> now I'm a member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. So I kind of abide by the Reagan doctrine and I don't, trash talk anybody who's a member of your network because ultimately we're all on the same team anybody else though absolutely yeah i will trash talk you so um no i was not (laughs) referring i know exactly which comment i think that you're talking about and that believe it or not was not actually a reference to you there used to be a website out there uh it was called uh, superman cinema and what they really needed was a picture of the webmaster filleting uh, Tom Mankiewicz. That's really what they needed on, the, <laughs> on their site because, I mean, my God, that was a suck fest, man. And so – and it just felt like it, it was no matter how, how far they had to reach or what kind of what crap they had to just pull out of thin air. They were going to insult and trash talk even Superman the Animated Series because it's not Richard Donner. And I thought, that is psychotic. Okay, you're not a Superman fan. You're a fan of Superman the movie, sir. And that's fine, but, you know, don't act like you're some kind of a fucking authority on the character, right? I mean, you know, bitch, I've read 500, at least 500 Superman comics in my life that I, that I can just think of off the top of my head. It's got to be more than that, but that's what I can swear to right now. And you've seen this movie a shitload of times, and you think that makes you an authority on the character? Fuck you. Get out of my face. Right. No, you know, and I'm glad you say that because there was something I was listening to, and hell, for all I know, it might have been one of your shows. I really can't remember, but this goes back a number of years where someone else kind of sort of in a much softer tone. And see, I like directly spoken people. I really do. And but they in a much more roundabout kind of pussyfoot way they essentially said what you said which was you know if if you hold yourself up as an expert of this but all you've ever seen is this one interpretation of it then you don't know shit and it made me do a self-examination of you know i like to think of myself as the superman guy or one let me correct that not the Superman guy, because clearly there are guys... You know, Mike Bailey knows much more about this character than I do, despite the fact that I've loved him all my life and longer than Mike. Right. But it made me kind of examine you know, how I think of myself as a Superman fan and go, okay, am I basing that on the fact, as you say, that I, you know, I'm a, I love Superman the movie, I, I, my ass was in the theater seat for it, and I've, I've watched it so many times I could recite it backwards to you. Is that what I'm basing this on? And it made me really dig deep and realize that, no, 
you know, I mean, my roots still come from the comics. I, I've read a lot of the comics and all that, but it's also made me go and want to beef up too, you know, because I don't want to be ever labeled one of those people because I know exactly the kind of people you're talking about. That's what Batman fandom's going through right now. These assholes that all they've ever seen is the three Nolan movies and you know my opinion of those yeah. and suddenly they think that they're the world's greatest batman fan bitch if you've never read a jim apparel batman don't fucking talk to me about batman don't talk to me because your opinion doesn't mean shit to me you know yeah, pretty much yeah and that's how i feel so yeah I, I mean you're perfectly valid in having that opinion of you know even superman the movie fan you know if if that's all they're going with yeah i think that would piss me off too because superman the movie you know the the all four of the chris reeve movies for for all their greatness and for all the the issues they have issues even the first one yeah you know and it's my favorite film so yeah i mean but it has yeah it has issues so well, I don't, I don't. well, and and, and to, you know, get into like sort of the other the other stuff that you mentioned, um, and that actually sort of ties in, you know, with some of the uh, the weaknesses of it. There are, I, it's a to me, it's kind of nitpicking, you know. Uh, how did Clark in Superman the movie? How did he actually get that job? Because he had he right. had no background for it. He'd been missing in action, you know, for all that for all that time, and just from a character standpoint, I mean. He checked out of the human race, basically, when the mm -hmm. Beatles were all the rage. And he comes back to a post-Watergate, post-Nixon, post-Vietnam world, and he's expected to just fucking fit in. Jesus, yeah. You know, I never even thought about it. Yeah, that's true. That is true. I was thinking more just like pop culture references. I was thinking very basic, but yeah, you're absolutely right. His world would have completely changed in those 12 years. Because yeah. let's see, you're talking, that was 78, so rewind 12 years, that's 66. Shit, he hadn't even lived through the moon landings. Yeah. And so, I mean, yeah, his the, the, the world fundamentally changed... And he missed it completely. So, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Plus, you know, one of the things with that is somewhere in there, I think, would have made a really good story of him scoring that job. Because Byrne kind of addressed that in his Man of Steel. He shows how this hick from the sticks becomes a reporter at the Daily Planet by scoring the first Superman story. And I like that because it actually lent a certain Peter Parker winky naughtiness to it that, you know, Peter Parker for all these years has been scamming J. Jonah Jameson out of money by taking pictures of himself and selling them, you know, to the Daily Bugle. Well, here Clark Kent kind of sort of did the same thing because he uses, you know, his secret identity to to score this job i i think that's brilliant i really like i know a lot of people didn't care for that but i actually did because i don't recall that ever really being addressed uh in superman stories before it was just i guess it was just always naturally assumed that he went to journalism school right i, I think that was even referenced at some point i i can't remember well and you know things like that that's not even a flaw that's just a little it, it's a little nitpick you know because Right. Ultimately, what the narrative needs to do is find a way to put, 
grown-up Clark Kent into the Daily Planet newsroom in time for the helicopter rescue. That's what needs to happen. So right. you are – Scott, I truly don't think you're you, – that, that you know or are comfortable with the amount of bullshit I'm willing to overlook to get Clark into the Daily Planet <laughs> newsroom, all right? Right. You don't want to know. You truly do not want to know. And so, you know, things like that I'm okay with. You know, one of the big gripes – and again, I'm not saying this to provoke you, so if you want to change the subject, that's totally fine. But, um, <laughs> you know, that whole uh, 12 years – that he does with uh, Jarrell, uh, this sort of Navajo spirit quest, whatever the hell that is. And I get the idea that what we're doing is we're just sort of taking a uh, sort of a trip through Clark's consciousness, right? It's all supposed to be very cerebral and everything. And on the and at the very end of it, there you see Jarrell. And what I've always kind of taken from this is that this is not a decision that Clark has come to organically of his own accord. Uh, this isn't a decision that he one day woke up and made. You know what? I need to be better than I am. I need to be more than more than I've become. He basically is brainwashed for 12 years, and he's taken out the other side in, a, in the Superman outfit. And then just, again, we had spent so much time in that movie on Krypton and a little bit in Smallville. We uh, Look, this movie cost millions and millions of dollars. It's got Superman's friggin' name on it. We need to get We, we need to get to the point here, guys. Right, and so I'm, I, I think I understand, you know, some of the pressures that Richard Donner must have been under, just to kind of get to the point already. But one of the things that I like about Smallville is that he goes through this amazing character journey. He starts off as this mixed-up, confused farm kid with a with this really unnecessary crush on the girl next door in the first episode, and by the final episode, he's the greatest superhero that the world has ever seen. He's, he's got a purity of heart, the likes of which you and I can't even fathom. That's the journey that this guy went through. And it kind of felt like, especially in retrospect, Richard Donner's Superman kind of took a shortcut, you know? And it's, it's just one of those things, it had always kind of bothered me once I really started thinking about it, but then sitting there watching Smallville and I saw this guy screw up and he made sometimes the wrong decisions but they were honest mistakes for him to make and he learned from them and ultimately that was part of his foundation to become I think Superman par excellence you know and anyway so if, if you find that you know offensive or provocative trust me we can change the subject I didn't get you on here no 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 not at, no, not at all because you know <laughs> I, I think sometimes I, I take unjust criticism by people that think that somehow I'm I'm unshakable and unflappable and and closed-minded or something. Uh, well, you know, actually, I before think it's we, important before you get into that. Do you know why I'm kind of sensitive to your comfort level? <laughs> why is that? Well, number one, I mean, you know, you're the guy that's let me share your web space, but number two, I remember the summer of 2012 and you said basically just a few words and I remember it's like the entire fucking Facebook social medium went after you. You said, I don't think oh, yeah. I'm going to see The Dark Knight Rises. Right. And, you know, look, I, I think that, you know, we all, takes our, t we, we all have to take our lumps in life, but holy shit. Holy shit. <laughs> you know, you don't want to see a movie? And anyway, so that's why, anyway, I don't, it's just, I don't want you to feel like I'm one of those guys. That's all. So anyway, what were you saying? No, 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 not at all. It, you know, I've had that same thought uh, about the... Um, you know, essentially the Fortress of Solitude scene, 
See, it, it's funny because that's one of my favorite scenes in that movie. Uh, so maybe that's why I've I've examined it a little bit more than is <laughs> is healthy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But yeah, that that occurred to me because I was kind of I can't remember why, but not long ago I was kind of re-examining the movie again and just looking for different things and that was one of the things that kind of occurred to me was I I guess what it was what I was looking at was how Superman and why Superman became who he is in different mediums Uh and even in different interpretations of the character and I, I had read something somewhere that said something very similar that it's not really Ma and Pa that are the influence in that one it's more Marlon Brando and for a time I kind of agreed with that and it started to kind of bug me and then I went back and watched more than just the Fortress of Solitude scene again Uh and Grant I'd be the first one to admit I don't think there's enough Mon Pa Kent Uh in there but I still maintain that it is clearly their uh, love and and values and their upbringing of him that ultimately forges him than anything else. I, I think it's one of the things I think Superman the movie really does well is that it actually shows you that it's it's an amalgam of the two. Mm-hmm. So what what the Kents provided him was you know, a home, love, stability, but good Christian values. Uh-huh. Because it's very clear in the in the death of Jonathan Kent cemetery sequence that they're Christian folk. Yes, they are. And I think that's very important in Superman's makeup. And, you know, people can take me to task if, if they get offended, you know, by that or whatever, but, you know, piss on them. That's just the way I look at it, is that's where he's getting his, his moral compass from. Uh-huh. But also, Jonathan Kent has a great line when he says, essentially, you know, you were meant for more than this. You know, when, when Clark's lamenting that he can't be part of the football team despite the fact that he'd be the greatest player and all that, he says, you know, you're, you are here for a reason. But then he admits he doesn't know what the reason is. That's where Marlon Brando steps in. That's where Jorel steps in to let him know that there's a certain destiny element to all of this that in his opinion this is what you were meant for you were meant to be a, a beacon for these people now the the weird thing about that and i think that this is more our our current culture uh-huh. Is that it would be very easy to project into that and going well who the hell's this guy to say you know, and, and you know, almost like there's an imposition of Kryptonian whatever upon the human race. Like we're just all a bunch of savages, and he's going to come and teach us the way. I never saw it that way. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm uncomfortable with people that want to put religious stuff onto Superman. You know, I've I've, I've often heard Superman called a, a, a Christ analogy or a, or a Moses analogy. I'm uncomfortable with that. I think there's clearly there are certain parallels, whether intentional or unintentional, 
but you have to remember Superman is Jewish. So I don't know if the Christ thing works. Maybe the Moses one, but I think that's more of how he got to us as, as anything else. I think it's just largely coincidence. But this idea of, you know, he, he's raised by these, these kindly Christian uh, middle America farm folk. And then when he learns where he really is from and what he can do, and he's got that, that, um, see, I don't look at it as brainwashing or even prodding necessarily, but that kind of, um, gosh, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe how I feel, you know, what, what Jorel is giving him. He, he's giving him. Uh, a certain enlightenment you know he's he's giving him perspective and i think it's that combination of those factors that in that version of the character that's what makes him but yeah you know there you you hit upon something that again has bugged me for a long time that even given all that there is a certain sense to the superman at least of the first two movies that his free will has been a bit taken away from him because a lot of pressures put on him. Um, we get that with the, the deleted scene that's added back in now with the special edition of Superman the movie of him going to his father for assistance and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later on when he wants to, no matter which version you watch of Superman 2... There's definitely resistance there and a lot of, are you sure you want to be doing this? Um, a lot of talk about his, you know, what he was meant for and giving up his, his destiny and all that there. So it, there, there is that element of maybe him not having as much choice in this matter of being Superman as opposed to, well, this is what you were meant to do. But then at the same rate, you know, again, in that scene that was added back in, Jor-El does tell him at the same rate that, you know, don't don't try to solve the world. You know, you have to allow time for yourself. And I he even, in a, uh, you know, in a, in a kind of roundabout way, kind of encourages him to keep his Clark Kent uh Identity, so that he has an ability to step out of Superman, mm-hmm. so that he's not just Superman all the time. So I, I don't know, but it's—I I think it's fun to think about at the very least. It is, and you know that's kind of funny because that leads into something that uh, Wilson and I talked about yesterday in uh, Man of Steel. Throughout, I mean, you've got all of these flashbacks to Kevin Costner's Jonathan, and he's always telling Clark what. He's like, his issue is that, you know, someday the world is going to discover who you are and what you can do. And when that happens, everything's going to change for the world and for you. And so this is something that you need to think through. You need to be careful about. Pick your moment. He basically, Jonathan gives Clark the what. Ultimately, he meets up with... uh, the uh, Jarrell, the AI Jarrell, in a uh, ship, and there's some plot stuff going on there. And Jarrell gives Clark the how. You know, this is, you know, you already know what you need to do. This is how you can do it. And it's 
it, it's basically both of his fathers. They're not making his decisions for him. They're simply acknowledging reality. And then they're telling him how best to handle it. And, um, you know, it's, it's, one of the, it's a very often overlooked and unappreciated aspect of that movie. But uh, it's, it's absolutely true. Again, that's not... I think when I was 14, actually, that would have been a def the definitive uh, Superman movie for me. But it's just... I've kind of broadened my taste a little bit. I'm not... I, I love the Burn Age Superman. I really do. That's one of my favorites. It's Sometimes it's number one on my list. Sometimes it's number two. You know, but I mean, it's it's definitely near the top of the list. But it's just, I guess, as a movie goes, that's not necessarily. It's Superman Returns was such a letdown for me that I was sort of at a point in my fandom where I just felt like I didn't need another Superman movie. I mean, does that does that make sense? It, it does. Um... It does in the aspect of I I don't need it if they can't do it right. Right. You know, if that makes sense. Well, I was... Basically, my attitude was all I really want from a Superman movie, like if there must be one, I want to see a Superman movie where he beats the crap out of somebody who can hit on his level. And... Right. We hadn't really gotten that. I mean, in the Christopher Reeve movies, he never really... He never really does that. And so... That's kind of a write-off. And then in Superman Returns, which I think just, you know, the as, as an abstract concept, it had a ton of potential to it. You know, we could have gotten a movie where you and I, uh, you know, as Superman fans, could have had our, uh, could have had the itch scratched for us, you know? And then again, it just, it didn't happen. And as far as... Let me ask you something, though, on that subject. Oh, sure. Because I've actually thought about this a lot lately, mm -hmm. and I'm not sure exactly why. Mm -hmm. But where, where did that movie go wrong? What uh, fundamentally, what the hell is wrong with that movie? Because I, for the longest time, I thought my hang-up with that movie was Superman abandoning the Earth, and now I'm not so sure because. Given the twelve-year thing that we just talked about, <laughs> I hate to admit this, but there you go. There's precedent right there. There's precedent for not necessarily Superman abandoning us, but Superman going off on a on a space quest somewhere. Um, you know. But even that, I don't know if that's any longer the the fatal flaw of that movie. I suspect it's much closer to what you were just saying that. We get the rehashed land scam deal again, as opposed to him fighting somebody. Well, if my attitude is this, and if you disagree with me, that's okay. But my attitude is if we'd gotten Superman Returns as you and I know it today, if we'd gotten that movie in 1992, I think that would have been the superhero sensation that swept the nation. You know, people would have loved that because there was already such a familiarity with the uh, with the Richard Donner Superman already. This is a story that was very much in the public consciousness at that time. Flash forward to 2006, and I just don't think that's the case, you know? And 
I think the other thing, at least for me, on a uh, just a, on a personal level, this is ostensibly a kind of a loose sequel to Superman 2. And Superman was kind of bitten in the ass by his own selfishness in that movie. I mean, whether anybody loves or hates Superman 2, and I'm, I'm really not a big Superman 2 fan, but whether any... Really? Yeah, no, I, you would not believe the, the crap I took for that Superman 2 episode I did. Because all I did was just uh, talk smack about it. Because, again, I assumed nobody was listening to my show, so I get to say anything I want. Who cares? <laughs> you have to be careful about yeah, that. Yeah, well, yeah. And so, and um, ostensibly, this is a sort of a loose sequel to uh, Superman 2. And I thought, well, considering the screw-ups that Superman made in Superman 2, I think, you know, just as you say, with precedent, Jarrell might, he just might have recalled, once Superman, you know, defeated the villains and everything uh, from the Phantom Zone in Superman 2, he might have said, okay, very good, job well done. You're coming back to the fortress because you obviously didn't learn what you needed to learn last time. Gone back up there for a couple of years and basically come out with a much fuller perspective, both from uh, Jarrell's education and his own personal bloody experience. Maybe older and wiser for having been through what he's been through. And then while he's, you know, while he was gone, you know, the story. It, you know, basically continues as it was, but it's now, instead of him off chasing windmills, he had, he had business, just personal business of his own that he needed to see to, and mankind interpreted that as him turning his back, and that's not what he was actually intending to do. What he wanted to do was be better than he'd ever been before, and that meant leaving for at least a little while. And if that had been the premise that the movie was based on, I think I might have actually been a little bit more willing to forgive it. But when you start hearing uh, those little story bits where Superman somehow thinks that Krypton friggin' survived in spite of the fact that it didn't, and he, of all people, should know that it didn't. I mean, it's just, how stupid are you, man? And then there's the there's that 20-something cast that they had. Yeah. You know, I mean... Yeah. I, look... Superman should have been a, a, an actor somewhere in his upper 30s. And Jimmy should have been somewhere in his lower 30s or upper 20s or something like that. These were not characters that had aged. They were very CW-friendly, you know, pretty faces. And it just... You don't buy that they have this history. You know, I mean, I can't buy Kate Bosworth as Lucy Lane, much less Lois Lane. And ugh, I just... From beginning to end, I just... There was so much about that movie that did not work for me. So, there you have it. <laughs> I, I will say this, though. You know, there were people your age who went to see uh, The Phantom Menace. They went in up for the game. And when they came out, they looked like they'd just gotten punched in the nards. Oh, yes. Yeah. And that's kind of the way I feel about Superman Returns. I mean, I'd waited three quarters of my life for a new Superman movie. And all I have to show for it is this. Well, believe me, I, I you know, I, I completely understand because I was one of those people. I went to, if memory serves, I went to a midnight movie, I do believe, because I just couldn't wait any longer. And walked out, I'm sure, looking like what you're talking about, because I remember taking... Um, 
Well, you, you, you listen to Two True Freaks. You probably know who Uncle Randy is that, that you know, we have on, from time to time. Uh-huh. I took Uncle Randy uh, when he came down to visit one time, and we went to see Phantom Menace when Phantom Menace was brand new in theaters. And he hadn't seen it yet, and I had. And I was nervous, and as much as possible, was trying to very gingerly, you know, ease him into it going... You know, I I just don't want you to be you know to be disappointed or whatever. And he went, "Why you didn't like it? No, no, I I like you know." And that sort of mm-hmm. thing. We came out of that, and he yeah, like you, you like you say, it looked like somebody had just run over his puppy, you know. And so I think I probably looked much the same way coming out of Superman Returns because at some point during the the first screening of that, it it crosses a point, and I'm not sure where that point was. But it crossed a line into, huh, you know, and oh, yeah. and it has has a re, you know it's remained there ever since. However, you know what's really funny is you know we we um, do commentaries as part of Two True Freaks, and Chris Honeywell and I did a commentary for Superman Returns at one point. Now I, for the life of me, don't remember what the hell we said. Uh, I guess I just need to go back and listen to the episode. But strangely, there's a, a site out there that um, promotes uh, podcast movie commentaries, and we've wound up on their site. It's called Zarban. Yeah, I'm on there too for something, yeah. Yeah. And somewhere on Zarban is our Superman Returns commentary, you know, a, a link to it, and they get people that go in and just leave random feedback. And somebody in there said something to the effect of, okay, this guy can't stand the Nolan Batman films, yet will defend this piece of crap. That tells you all you need to know. Or something really rude to that effect. And I'm thinking, did I defend Superman? I don't remember, but I don't think that I did. Because I don't consider myself a fan of that movie. But at the same time, you know, it, it's weird. I I don't think that it left the franchise in a irreparable state either because I think there, there were things to like in it. It's just the, the, the complete finished package. You know, you talk about the Superman movie I didn't want or need. That's, you know, I mean, I'm going to hold that one up as a prime example. Um... You know, I'll both agree with you and disagree with you at the same time about the timing thing. You know, I'll I'll agree that I think that they waited way too long to make a sequel to the Chris Reeve version Superman movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll give you that one because the last one came out in what was it, 1987? I want to say. Yeah. And then the new one comes out in 2006. That's damn near 20 years. That That's a long time for a sequel. Mm-hmm. You know, that's more or less a direct continuation, not even of that last movie. Right. Because it kind of ignores three and four. So I'll give you that. But where I'll disagree with you is I don't think that's the fatal flaw of the movie. I think it's one of its many flaws, but I don't think that's the, the flaw. What? Ultimately, I think it comes down to a combination of uh, the whole, you know, he he left and then he comes back. See, my my pet theory with that movie is that 
somebody came up with that name, Superman Returns, and was so enamored of it that they made them make a story around that name. Mm -hmm. And that being the case, that's why it fundamentally fails, because... Like you say, the timeline just doesn't work for that movie. It doesn't work with the ages of the characters. It doesn't work with the with the kid that she has. None of the timeline works at all, especially when you take the age of the actors into account of the ages that they should be. Right. So there, there's definitely that aspect. But what I've actually focused on much more in, in recent times is, uh, is Lex Luthor. Now... I don't know if I've ever said this before, but I'll come clean. I'm not particularly enamored of uh, of what's his name, Kevin. Um, oh, Kevin Spacey. Spacey. Yeah. He kind of just gives me the creeps, which I guess he's supposed to do when he plays bad guys, but it gives me the creeps in in not a good way. Right. And I didn't really care for his Lex Luthor. And I do think that he's kind of doing a warmed over Gene Hackman. And he's a, it's essentially the same goddamn plot. Right. I mean, the movie already had, working against it in my opinion, stealing way too much stuff from Superman 1 and 2 to begin with. But then when you've got essentially the same plot too, that really doesn't help your movie at all. I mean, the special effects are fantastic in that movie. So what they really needed to do was finally bring in that that enemy on his power level and have that be the threat you know whoever that may be whether it was you know i don't know brainiac god forbid doomsday whatever but have there be a fight in there and by not doing that i i think that's one of the the biggest problems that movie has is that ultimately i just eh, the whole stupid crystal thing and yeah. it was just it was just stupid it, yeah well, the um, it, it's funny. I think that movie turned off wide audiences and it turned off fan audiences, but for different reasons. And yeah. ultimately, you know, when you have a movie that has that as its weakness, it's not going to find an audience, or at least not a big one. And, you know, Superman fans, I mean, there were certain things that we were looking for that fundamentally we did not get. Wide right. audiences, what they need is a an access point to the characters and origin stories are so effective in doing that uh, you know people can uh, they can love or they can hate Batman Begins but it did set up those movies very powerfully and as a result you wouldn't have the Dark Knight be as big as it was if you didn't have Batman Begins clearing the way for it and here what you have is with Superman Returns, it's a sequel to something that in the public mind never existed in the first place. I mean, yeah, you and I know it as a, as a kind of, sort of, half-ass, not really sequel to Superman, the movie, and Superman 2. Wide audiences hadn't, haven't seen those movies, if ever, certainly not in years, a long time. And so they're, it's basically picking up character threads and story threads and uh, characters themselves that wide audiences are just sitting there thinking what the fuck am I supposed to do with this the I saw the I want to say it was like the 8 o'clock or the 9 o'clock or something like that premiere of uh, the movie you know the day before it came out and 
I knew this movie was dead in the water when I when I heard somebody coming out of the theater saying, "Are you sure that was the guy from Smallville? Because I don't think that looked like him at all." And I thought this movie's mm-hmm. fucked. Um, if they don't mm-hmm. know who this character is and like the context in which this is all happening, you can't ask them to get invested in in a story that they fundamentally have no stake in. Right. And I I think the proof is in the pudding on that. I mean. If nothing else, what that movie showed us was that just the Superman name by itself, that's good for a 70-some-odd million dollar opening weekend. So that's good news. But it didn't really tell us anything about what the public truly thinks of Superman and how badly they want this character back. And after all this time of waiting, everybody deserves something better than that, you know? Right. So... The, the one piece of kudos I can give that movie, and it's it's the same one everybody cites, is the, the plane sequence. You know, I, that is the one thing that universally I've, I've heard praised, and I think, you know, justifiably so. I, I think if the movie had just given us more of that, you know, it, it would have been an infinitely better uh, better picture. But just for that one sequence... It felt like, okay, somebody gets it. I just wish more of the movie had felt... I wish the, the entire rest of the movie had felt that way, unfortunately. But I, I still do enjoy that. When I when I rewatch that movie now, which is very seldom, it's pretty much going straight to that scene, watch that scene, when the scene ends, I'm done, put in something else. Well, the... Um, but I do like that. Uh, after I watched Man of Steel for the first time, I decided I'd give Superman Returns you know another look specifically the uh, the uh, plane sequence and I gotta tell you dude I wanted to cry because instead of enjoying that sequence you know like this is really the one decent point of the movie where you know the sort of the floodgates get opened and we get you know some decent action this entire time I was thinking I wonder what Zack Snyder would have done with this because he Anytime there was an action scene that was going on, anytime Superman was in the air, he was flying, he, uh, Snyder kept Superman usually very close to the camera. He was filling up the screen. He's large and in charge. He's powerful. And when Singer was directing, he wanted to pull the camera back, and it just looks like Superman is this tiny little flying toothpick. It's like I'm watching fucking Mighty Mouse or something. And, <laughs> you know, it's just... It's hard to... On a subconscious level, it's hard to believe in his power when he's so small on screen. And I hadn't even really realized it, but whether it was by luck or by design or, or what, that's a problem that the Donner movies just did not, or the Reeve movies, I should say, they did not have that problem. Maybe it was just technological limitations. You couldn't have Superman be too small on the screen just because of uh, technological practicalities that they were dealing with. But whatever the case might right. have been... You go back and watch Superman the movie, and it's pretty much the same thing. He's not always filling up the screen when he's flying, but usually he is. And usually, yeah. The best example I can think of, you know, of how of how the job's done right. People can make fun of the effects in this scene all they want, but it's still awesome to me. There's this moment where Jimmy's about to fall off the dam. I mean, he's hang, he's digging in with his fingernails. I mean, his fingernails are about to fall out. That's how hard he's clawing in there, right? Superman, he's zipping along through the canyons. He looks over, sees what's about to happen, and he and he just kind of 
there's a, he just sort of banks off to his right and zips right, off to yeah. the dam. And, you know, it's a very fast blink and you miss it kind of moment. He goes from being a tiny little speck on the screen. He fills up the screen, banks to the right, goes back to being a tiny little speck. And, again, blink and you miss it, but that's Superman. I mean, he's, he's really capable of reacting that fast. He can move that fast. He can fly that way. And if that was the one thing that anybody ever saw from Superman the movie, I dare say you've actually got a pretty decent insight into who Superman is. Just in that, how long does that shot last? Like two or three seconds or something like that? Yeah, if that, yeah, I know exactly the shot you're talking about. Because it's sped up just slightly. And again, people can make fun of that all they want. I don't care. I think it still looks awesome. And you don't really get, it's just you don't really get as much of that in in Superman Returns. He's always just this tiny little uh, army action figure zipping around on the screen and who cares and I don't know. It's Maybe that's a nitpicky, I don't know, but it just, it, it felt like Brian Singer was the exact wrong guy. Like, it felt like there was maybe a decent concept, a decent movie hiding around in the basic concept of that movie, but it's not, the finished product is, ugh. And, and it pains me to think that, you know what, there's an entire group of people out there, that's their definitive Superman movie, that's scary as that is. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know about that. I... You know, I, I've not met a lot of people that seem to have that level of opinion of it. Even the people that I know that are like, eh, I liked it, it was okay. I don't hear anybody going, that's my Superman movie. I, no, I, I'm sure there are people, but I've just, I've not heard them. So, mm. I don't know. I've heard a lot more of them. <sighs> I've heard a lot more of them hold up Man of Steel as, you know, their Superman, which, you know... <laughs> troubles me greatly, but well, I, I think time, you know, over time, I think that Superman Returns will become the the forgotten, you know, another forgotten Superman thing that was out there at one time. Well, the um, the biggest fear that I had was that Warner Brothers was actually going to roll the dice again and do another. Uh, basically do a sequel to Superman Returns and I remember asking myself you know where the hell do you go with the story after this you know I mean I don't I really don't know what's left because if you I, I didn't hey, look I'm not a writer but I, I really did not see a way to preserve the classic Superman mythos in a universe in, in a continuity where Lois Lane is basically married to somebody else and Superman is a father you know I did not see a way to make that work. Because if you put Lois... Lois is... She's always putting herself in danger to, uh, you know, to get her story. Except she can't really do that anymore. She's got a kid. You know, she's got responsibilities now that are bigger than her next Pulitzer Prize. She needs to be a little bit more right. judicious. So where's her access point into this story? And then from Superman's standpoint, how can he really be this child's father when he already recognizes friggin' Cyclops as his father? You know? What happens then? And... It just, and, th and thank God, you know, it never happened, but I was just... I don't, you know, I don't know, though. I, I'll, I'll argue the thank God it didn't happen, only in the aspect of what if they did it and didn't address any of that? What if uh, what if Lois Lane was, was barely in it, or maybe even not in it? Maybe the, the thing with the kid is... 
you know, acknowledged in, a, in an aspect where, you know, they have a little father-son time, but then the rest of the movie, you know, what if they made a, a much more Superman-focused movie and kind of kept the, uh, you know, the, the quote-unquote supporting characters to a minimum and not really spent time at the Daily Planet and with, with Jimmy and Perry and Lois and all that and, and come up with a story that was much more about him. Well, it's just the last time you know, somebody did that was Superman 3, and uh, people don't really seem to appreciate <laughs> that movie. I mean, I seem to be the only one in the room who will defend that movie to the hilt. Oh, no, no, not at all. As a matter of fact, it's funny you say that, because uh, Michael Bailey and I have a, a long-standing agreement that one of these days we are going to get around to launching a defense of that movie just like we did for Superman 4. Um... I, I might even be a little bit more passionate about defending that one than than four. I you know four. I will admit that my defense of that is also with a free acknowledgement of the many issues that that movie has. I mean the special effects, by and large, are crap. Yeah. The story could be a lot better. Some of the characters are flat annoying. But at the end of the day. I see potential there, and and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll let people go listen to it because that's been done. Michael Bailey and I did it, and, and he's posted it on you know and his uh, his podcast. Three um, would be a different kind of defense because I, I don't think that it's the movie that people think that it is, yeah. and uh, you know even. Uh, with with the major flaw of that movie being Richard Pryor, even that is not that bad. Um, I th- I think the the ultimate problem with Superman three is it ain't got enough Superman in it. I think that's really at the core of what's wrong with that movie. Is that the the movie we got is not necessarily bad. You know, it, it it's actually I I think it's a pretty fun. 80s movie in that 80s movie kind of way but the problem is is that you've kind of got you've kind of got two movies going on at the same time you've kind of got Superman 2.5 and the toy part 2 going on at the same time and so neither one of them really gets fully fleshed out and they both they both kind of get short shrift with the the Richard Pryor vehicle getting a little, at least feeling like it gets a little more time than the Superman portion does. I mean, in a, in a nutshell, that that's my half you know half-assed analysis of the movie. But that said, I I enjoy it. You know, I really do. There there are many more elements of Superman that work for me in Superman Two than there are in 4 and most especially Superman Returns. I think Superman 3 hits the mark a hell of a lot closer than Superman Returns does. Well, the um, anytime somebody trash talks Superman 3, what I, what I try to do is just say, find me a Bronze Age comic book that Superman 3 bears absolutely no resemblance to. Right. Yeah. And good luck. You know, and yeah. so people are—I guess—they're—they're they're, they're entitled to their own opinion, but not their own facts. And <laughs> the fact is, at least as I see it, uh, first off, it's—it's it's Christopher Reeve playing Superman. So shut up. 
Um, number three, uh, number two, it's if if, if you've got to tie Superman three back to Superman two somehow. Well, keep in mind that he's going to Smallville, and he ends up kind of, sort of, not really hooking up with Lana Lang. And he just had his heart torn out of his chest, pissed on, and then set on fire back in Superman 2. He had to break up with Lois. Um, there really wasn't, at least as it's presented in that movie, there really was no alternative there. And so, I'm mm-hmm. sorry, that that hurts. And he's kind of nursing a broken heart. And as it happens, Lana Lang is in a kind of similar position where her husband ran out on her. And they were in this weird position where they could kind of bring comfort and support to one another. in a Not in a completely romantic way, but not completely platonic either. They were in that weird sort of middle ground. You know, when like you first meet somebody and you haven't started up with them yet, but you're pretty sure you're going to. But not yet, you know? And that's kind of that that weird middle ground that uh, that they're in at that moment. And I think for people who have just had their heart broken, that's some of the best medicine that they can possibly get. And right. I don't know. I mean, it's just maybe I'm maybe I'm, you know, bending spoons a little bit too much here and I'm re- imposing stuff on the story that just doesn't exist, but I don't know. I just I I really like uh, I really like Superman three, and it's got the hands down the best flying sequences in any of those films, except maybe Supergirl. And it's, it's people are going to complain about this, really? I mean, wow, that's interesting. Yeah, it's got some really good uh, effect sequences in it mm-hmm. too, because the, the whole factory fire sequence I, I like quite a bit. I think that that's good stuff. Oh, yeah. and, and anyway, so. I, don't, I just I, I, I dig that movie. I will defend it all day long. Uh, it, to me, it's I put it on the same level as Star Trek Generations, as far as like just misunderstood, unappreciated sequels. That mm-hmm. um, you know, because you hear people talk smack about Star Trek Generations two, and again, that just kind of blows my mind. I mean, it's like you guys don't like th- this movie is friggin' punk rock, you know, and y- you you don't <laughs> like it. What's not to like? So like, I don't know where you are with Generations, but um, anyway. I, I like Generations a lot. The Generations is weird because in a, in a slightly hypocritical way, it's not the Star Trek movie. It, it's not the crossover movie that I wanted. But given what it is, I've, I've really come to like it. I mean, I, I've never disliked it, but, you know just going into that movie for the first time and knowing because it had been, you know, it was everywhere in all the magazines and TV and everything else. And knowing that, you know, the, the only classic guys that were going to be in it were, were Kirk, uh, Scotty and Chekhov. That was a great disappointment, but at least you get it out of the way early. If you know that going into it, once that's out of the way, if, if you're able to set that aside, then I think the movie that we got is a hell of a lot of fun and I enjoy the ride. I I think, you know, I I don't want to speak for other people, but I suspect that that's a lot of people's problem with that movie is it's not the crossover they wanted and that's where it stops for them. And they're not able to get past that and enjoy what we did get. I, I think there's a lot to, to love about Generations. I really do. And, I, you know, the, the moments that 
Kirk and uh, and Picard spend together, uh, I, I think are I think they're great. I think they're some of the best, um, you know, the best Star Trek moments, you know, that there were. Star Trek Generations works for me on a number of levels because, to me, Star Trek is the story of James T. Kirk. Right. You know, that's not to say that there's not other characters that I that I don't like because, you know, I, I loved Spock. You know, I, I love characters from Next Gen. Hell, I love characters from from Voyager and, and Enterprise. But at the end of the day, it's Kirk's story. And so one of the things that Generations does, and it's funny because I think that people, there, there's a lot of people that don't necessarily want to be honest with themselves and admit it, but what it does is it once and for all, it settles that great debate about who's the better captain. Because <laughs> after waiting seven years, we finally get to see Picard and Kirk share the screen. And how is it done? Well, Picard can't get the job done, so he goes to the guy that can, James T. Kirk. Right. That, to me, is what the movie's all about. Yeah, Star Trek Next Generation, pretty good stuff. Picard, yeah, I've come to like him. He's pretty good captain, but he ain't no Kirk. <laughs> And Kirk's the one that comes in and kicks all the ass and gets the job done at, you know, at the cost of his own life, as it turns out with this movie. But uh, I, I love it. You know, my, my only regret, honestly, uh, isn't necessarily so much with the movie itself, but that I think some of the, the legacy, so to speak, of, of Generations is, is kind of sad because, for one the best sequel that there ever was for for generations was Shatner's book The Return. Damn, it's a shame that movie was or that book was never made into a movie cuz it was fantastic. Um as the written word goes, that's my favorite Star Trek story. Wow. Um you know uh, of what you would call, you know, expanded universe or whatever. It, it's just fantastic. It gives you it gives me everything I could possibly ever want out of a Star Trek story and that much more. You know, you've got a new Enterprise, you've got Kirk Returns from the Dead, you've got V'ger connections, you've got the Borg, you've got uh, old Spock and, and old um, McCoy, and I think Scotty's in it too, I think, but I can't remember. Um, all interacting not only with each other, but with the, you know, the, the next-gen crew. Mm. And just going on this grand adventure that, uh, you know, just, you know, ties up a lot of things, has to do with the Borg, and again, has that connection with V'ger. And, uh, and damn, I just, I love that story. I, I really, uh, I wish that had been the, the next film rather than what we got. But also, in a lot of ways, um, even though it took years to happen, I, I kind of look at Generations as the end of Star Trek because I think once Kirk was taken off the table, it, it took a while, but I think Star Trek kind of died at that point, you uh -huh. know, and, and it existed kind of on, on life support for a while. But, I mean, you, you go past Generations, and for most fans, and, and you see this borne out in the... Um, 
the reviews that people give of the subsequent movies and in the subsequent uh, seasons of the shows that were running at the time, it's just this this steady um, decline as far as fans' opinions of Trek to a point where they eventually, of course, rebooted it. Who did they reboot it with? Kirk and Spock. Now, whatever your opinions are of that, and mine are not high, I think that does say something. That somewhere somebody realized, hey, you know, Star Trek? That's really about Kirk and Spock. And so that, you know, I, I trace that all back to, to Generations, is that once once Kirk died and in the movie universe was, was left dead, I, I think that actually did something to, to Trek that sadly they, they didn't, you know, they. I think they realized it a little late. I, I've always been kind of surprised that they didn't make an effort to uh, to bring Kirk back, and I don't know if that was maybe that was Shatner. Maybe he just wasn't interested. I don't know, but he has since done an awful lot of stuff as Kirk. Uh, you know, since dying in generation. I mean, God, that was what twenty two years mm-hmm. ago. And he, you know, he appeared at the Oscars as Kirk, and he's been in several commercials and. I know he's done voice work and, and, you know, cameos and this, that, and the other thing. So why not, you know, pull the trigger and come back in the, in the films. And all I can think is that either it was going to cost too much or Paramount or whoever the parent company was at the time just wasn't interested in writing, you know, and, and, and presenting that story, which is a damn shame. Well, the, uh, I've I've wondered a few times uh, a, a few times if fuck what's that guy's name Berman 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 yeah. and Braga if they didn't if they weren't a little too close to all of this and maybe they felt a little protective I'm I'm just gonna say it they had friggin' ego problems one of the things I find is that at least in Hollywood egos run everything. Oh yeah, and it just it can't I can't help but think was that part of it? You know, I mean, it, audiences I think ended up speaking very clearly, and their own pride wouldn't wouldn't let them do anything about it. You know, that could very well be because yeah, I'd completely forgotten those guys to be honest with you, but uh, yeah, you know, because during the time when next gen was ascendant that's when classic trek fell into that that stigma reputation of basically being trek's crazy old uncle right and i think those guys were largely responsible for that perception among the younger fandom that didn't necessarily know classic trek mm-hmm. and yeah, so maybe in their opinion, maybe this was a good way. Because I know, I, I, see, I can't identify like the specific because so much time has passed and everything. But I know that there there were showrunners amongst both the people that worked on Next Gen, but then also, of course, the people that made Generations, be it the you know the the showrunners or the writers or whatever. There were many hands involved in Generations, people that freely admitted. They'd never watched classic Trek, had no interest in it. So here they're bringing in the biggest guy of all, Shatner, 
And basically writing a movie based on reputation of Kirk as opposed to actual knowledge. Now, when it comes to Kirk, I think that I, I think they got away with it. I think they got away with not really knowing him, but still being able to write a movie where he, he more or less worked. But it does show uh, around the edges because some of Scotty and Kirk's dialogue when they're trying to you know, solve the problem with the ribbon at the beginning of the mm-hmm. movie doesn't work. A lot of that comes off as next-gen technobabble as opposed to the standing relationship between Scotty and Kirk and also their own version of technobabble that existed in the classic series. They just don't talk that way is essentially what I'm trying to say. And then also uh, the one scene that's never really worked for me is when Kirk's in the Nexus of all of the people that could have been in the Nexus with Kirk and, and been his version of, of married heaven or whatever the hell it was supposed to be, instead of coming up with someone we knew and made logical sense, they come up with this cipher that we never heard of, never will hear of, don't know anything about, and it just rings completely false. Because there's a number of people that it should have been, uh, as opposed to whatever her name was. I've forgotten now. And so those are the things that, that make it very clear that, you know, they they didn't really understand Kirk. They were just kind of writing him as broad hero archetype Kirk, you know, from from reputation as opposed to, to straight knowledge. Um so yeah, I think that's another reason they didn't necessarily uh, want to address bringing him back. Maybe the, you know, this never just occurred to me, and, and of course pure speculation. But maybe uh, maybe their intent was not only just to kill him off to make an exciting movie that would make money, but to kind of maybe put the capper on the whole thing. You know, now it's next gen. Right. Because there was all this talk about passing the baton. I remember that being in every friggin' article that came out about Next Gen. That, that, that phrase kept coming up. Passing the baton, passing the baton. So I guess that was their intent. Unfortunately, they passed it, but then Next Gen didn't live a whole lot longer. No. Trek, Trek overall didn't live a whole lot longer. Yeah, no, that's, that's, very, that's very true. And I can't help but think... If the name of that show had been anything other than The Next Generation, if they just called it, I don't know, uh, more Star Trek or something, I don't know, Star Trek Tomorrow, (laughs) pick your favorite. Right. Would it have been less incumbent upon people to think, okay, well, sooner or later these guys are going to start having their own movies, so tick-tock, assholes, when's it going to happen? And... was was there an element of that maybe you 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 raise a great question because i i think you yeah i think you hit upon something because i don't remember there being any clamor for uh what's his face cisco to meet kirk or janeway to meet kirk but there was constant clamor for picard and company to meet kirk and company so, yeah, I, I think that it was implied, 
you know, that one day, and, and of course, you know, you've got, the, those were those were the big two. You know, you had the original guys, and then next gen, despite all the other incarna- incarnations that came later with, with DS9 and Voyager and Enterprise, and even the, you know, Peter David came up with his own uh, series, you know, the, the New Frontier, which was a, you know, basically another Star Trek franchise, just in novel mm-hmm. form. Even with all that, it was really, it was next gen that was the face of Star Trek. You know, once, once it came along, it became Star Trek of just of that generation sounds so cheesy, but you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It was, it, it was the new Star Trek. And so I, I think that there was just this natural desire for, uh, you know, these two to, to, to come together or clash, whichever, at some point. Plus, they were both being simultaneously produced. You still had classic Trek movies at the same time that Next Gen was, was playing on TV. Mm-hmm. And I think they built that, too. Because you have to remember, you know, very first episode, Old McCoy... And then there was uh, old Spock when you know Star Trek VI was uh, you know was having that build up. You know, building, trying to build anticipation for that movie maybe amongst the next gen people by by having Spock come in and lay up a couple of cryptic hints about you know what might happen in that movie to maybe entice next geners to go see it that might might not otherwise be interested in something that was classic Trek that sort right. of thing. Well. But, you know, to, to address your question, though, I mean, if Next Gen had been called, you know, if they had been on, you know, the Starship, you know, Lollipop, and it had been Star Trek Lollipop, you know, would there have been this clamor for the two of them to cross over? You know, probably not. Pro- honestly, probably not. Mm. It's probably that lofty title that, that did a lot of the work for them, I would think. Right, and it's just it's it's also kind of funny that the next generation, like as a title, it made a lot of sense at the time that show premiered. Doesn't really add up anymore now, does it? No, not when you figure that there's what eighty something years in between and two more enterprises. No, it doesn't yeah. at all. And uh, you know, looking back at it, it's it's kind of funny that that's maybe the one time this the title of a Star Trek property wasn't talking about Star Trek itself. It was talking about the viewers. The next generation, that was the people watching the show. Not the... Not right, yeah, you're right. And yeah. it's interesting to think about. But um, the thing about uh, generations that always kind of worked for me is um, what everybody, I think, kind of remembers about Star Trek Two is that sort of midlife crisis that Kirk was going through. And, you know, what the hell have I really accomplished? And I think he, he still is struggling, even though he should have resolved it by then, he was still struggling with all of that for God knows what reason in generations. And here he actually does resolve it. And he, he'd spent, really, I, for whatever reason, all of the intervening years since, since the Wrath of Khan wondering, was all of this worth it? What's the point? And the right. answer to that question of, is it all worth it, is, in the end, yes. You are James T. Kirk. You can't be anything else. You were always going to be captain of the Enterprise. This is who you are. It's in your blood. And you're sitting here 
worrying about death when you're everything you've ever uh, achieved in uh, in your time it's life meaning comes from life not death and it it was only when he was having this near-death experience in that Nexus ribbon that he that he really understood, you know, every, as as wonderful as utopian as whatever as this place may be, I need the thrill of the hunt, and I'm not getting that here. This is completely mm-hmm. artificial. Even I, I don't want I, I want to be careful how I say because I don't want to I don't want to make Kirk out to be like this weird adrenaline junkie. But there is an element to to, oh, to all of that where he's everything he does has got to be balls to the walls with his hair on fire, and he he's not the kind to go to go quietly into the good night. And what he needed to understand, I think, in that movie was that his entire life was worth it, and even if he could, he wouldn't change anything. It, this is just who he is, and it said so much positive about Kirk, not to mention the fact that, yeah, he is the captain. This is, you know, he's done so much for Starfleet, for the universe, for everybody. And it's okay to have regrets and wish that maybe some things could have gone differently, but damn it, man, you're a hero, you know? And anyway, so, I don't know, I rewatching that movie um, a couple of years ago, because I truly did not understand, you know, what exactly the problem was that people had with it. I really don't understand it now. It's just, it's, I think, is it the greatest Trek there ever was? Well, no, but it's, it's pretty good. So, uh, now how are you doing on time? Um, I'm, I'm doing all right. All right, well, I just... What else did you want to talk about? Oh, um, <laughs> well, and the, there was, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, the reboot. Now, I... One question uh, that I've got. Did you ever see um, Star Trek Into Darkness? No. You know, it's kind of funny. There are some movies that, like, they start off weak, but then they get better and better, and then they really do end well. That's one of the very few movies that I've ever seen where it just gets worse and worse and worse. (laughs) That's what I've heard, And, you know, you got to understand, I mean, I kind of took this a little bit personally because I was not the biggest... Uh, Trek 2009 fan there ever was but I thought you know the idea of rebooting this thing well, let's, let's just cut the shit that's what this is it is a reboot mm-hmm. I thought you know what well you get the guy from Heroes in there and you know the, this whole idea has got I don't know, it's, it's, it's got some disco potential to it you know by all means let's let's see where we can go especially in the in a timeline where you don't necessarily have to uh, recapitulate all of classic Trek. You can go your own way uh, with the story, and you don't have to. You don't have to be what Trek has always been. You don't have to compete with the original series because that's a hard. That's a hard thing to measure up to. You know, you can be your own thing, and no one's going to hold it against you. They didn't seem to realize that. And that's really my my main problem with with uh, this new Star Trek that we've got now. So, you you talk about catching flack. That's something I've caught a lot of flack for. Really? Um, you know, the the last thing I want to do is is try to per- portray myself as some sort, some you know, somehow 
superior to other people or like I have the moral high ground or something like that. that that's not it at all. It, it, for me, the thing with, with Into Darkness and, and the reason I didn't go see it and the reason I don't understand why I've taken so much shit for not seeing it comes down to this. I, I think that, you know, going all the way back to the beginning of, of this conversation, when I said that you don't have to settle. God damn it, I mean that. You don't have to settle. If, if you're getting something, you know, something's being presented to you that you, you just know you're not going to like, I, I don't understand this attitude of, ah, just, all right, well, you're giving me a, a, I wanted steak and potatoes and you're giving me a plate full of shit. I guess I'll eat the shit. No, I, I don't, I, I fundamentally disagree with that. And so the thing for me is, and you know, you, you can call it what you want. You can call it being, being stubborn and rigid and, and whatever, but I'm very much of the opinion that, you know, it, it, it's like going to a, a, a restaurant. You go to a restaurant and you get lousy service and you, and you hated it and it was awful, you know, that's it. I, I think I'm done with that. I'm going to go eat somewhere else. Why, why would I go back? And that was kind of how I was feeling with walking away from Trek 09. I really did not enjoy that movie. But I was kind of willing to give him a second shot. Provided that Star, their Star Trek 2 was not going to be a remake of Wrath of Khan. And instantly, the, the <sighs> moment, it seemed like the minute that Star Trek 09 hit the, and, and became a big hit, that was the rumor. Oh, there's going to be a sequel. And you know what? They're going to do Wrath of Khan. And I thought, if they do Wrath of Khan, and I said this publicly, if they do Wrath of Khan, I'm out. I'm out. I have no interest in seeing a remake of one of the greatest science fiction movies ever made. Zero interest in that. And so then the KG bastards tried to play it off like they weren't doing a remake. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no, we're not. We're doing this. And oh, Benedict Cumberbund, he's playing this character. And oh, it's it's completely not what you think. Oh, blah, blah, blah. blah. And it was all horseshit. And at the end of the day, what was it? It was a remake of Wrath of Khan. And when that was spoiled for me, that's it. I, I believe in being a, a person of your word. If you say it, mean it, and if you mean if you say if you mean it, say it, or something to right. that effect. You know. And I said I wasn't gonna see it if it was a remake of Wrath of Khan, and goddammit, I meant it. And so I when they when that came to light that that's what it was. I was out. And that, in a nutshell, is why I haven't seen it and why I won't see it. Why would I want to do that? There have been too many movies that I hold near and dear in my heart that they have gone back for whatever reason and tried to make a, a remake of it and they just never work for me. You know, there, there's a reason why I like the original and it just seems like almost invariably that they they just don't understand it. it it's the very rare remake and off the top of my head i can really only think of one and it's more of a reimagining than a remake i i rather liked the reimagining of dawn of the dead from a number of years ago what was that 2004 or whatever i, I rather like that but it's a completely different movie than the original it's not trying to remake it 
It's just taking the same idea and running in a different direction with it. So, you know, all these things that have come out, like uh, Day the Earth Stood Still and RoboCop and now Star Trek, I'm just not interested. You know, re take Ishtar and remake that into something that somebody could actually sit through. <laughs> if you want to challenge Hollywood, do that. But don't take a great movie and and sully it. I don't understand why you would want to do that. I, I really don't, you know? Um, yeah, no, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm right there with you. That actually leads into one of the trepidations that I've got about The Force Awakens. And it's that hmm. it's being made by people who are unequivocally Star Wars fans. And especially among that generation, that translates to original trilogy fans. And among fans of that type, that translates to especially fans of The Empire Strikes Back. And so my fear is that The Force Awakens is going to, or if not that, then some subsequent film, is going to be this really strange type of love letter to Empire. The same way that Trek into Darkness was this was this kind of weird, creepy love letter to Wrath of Khan, you know? That's actually what I'm what I'm afraid of. And can I can I just say I had no idea that you felt this way, and I, I just I'm being completely honest. It's so it's it's a relief. It's so nice to know I'm not the only one because up till now. Um, you know, God, God love my friends. You know, I, I, I know that often they are just simply tolerant of mm -hmm. me. You know, I know that there's a good number of my buddies, you know, from, from Chris to Mike to, to Scott that, that look at me and, and just kind of, you know, that's nice. And, you know, they want to do the head pat, but inside they're thinking, huh, poor deluded bastard, yeah. you know? But you're, you're honestly, I think you're the first one that, that I've talked to that just right out of the gate says, you know what, I got, I got some funny feelings about this because I have not had a good feeling about this movie and I still lack a good feeling about this movie. You know, the, the entire world has pissed its pants twice now for these shitty, uh, I don't even, I, you can't even call them trailers, they're teasers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everybody's so jazzed. And I'm like, what the hell are you seeing that I'm not? Because I've seen nothing that has gotten me excited. That whole Chewy were home thing. I'm sorry, but you know what that looks like to me? That looks like the scene where Chewy and, and Han walk into Chewy's house on Kashyyyk in the Star Wars holiday special just 40 years later. I, I, it didn't excite me. It actually looks kind of sad because Hans, I mean, he's ancient. And I'm sorry, does Chewie look funny to anybody else? He looks vaguely Asian to me, and I don't know what the hell's going on with him. So, yeah, you know, I, it's a new Star Wars movie. God damn it, I should be hyped up. And I'm more fearful than anything else because... You know what? It's gotten to a point at, right now with me that I, I really don't have many more left to lose. I've lost Star Trek. I've lost Superman. Tron Legacy just sucked. There's not a lot left for me. Please don't take Star Wars away from me. I, I just don't know if I could handle it, you know? No, I, I'm right there with you. 
and the, it's just like there was the that more not the first teaser but that second teaser there was actually something in there that actually looked really cool and it was a blink and you miss it uh little bit but it was basically a bunch of stormtroopers doing something or other and calisthenics uh, yeah, i guess so i have no idea what it was <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I but it, they were standing in front of this. It was. It, it just looked very Third Reich to me with that huge Imperial banner in the background, because we never right. really got, like, I guess, the like the propaganda cult of personality stuff that you associate with a lot of 20th uh, century, you know, fascism and then the communism and all that stuff, where you know you had these weird fucked up statues and banners were everywhere, and you know just the, like the nationalism of it all. And, you know, right. c- considering that's that was a germ of the inspiration for all of this stuff, it feels authentic to have stuff like that in there. And I thought, that is really creative. Kudos, guys. But then that Chewy were home bit, honestly, that just kind of rolled off me. I didn't really care so much about that. But the thing that really started making me worry was that We've all seen this publicity photo of uh, Chewbacca a thousand friggin' times. He's holding his bowcaster in this weird kind of pose, and it's he's holding it with his right, like the like the upper part of it, with his right paw, the trigger in his left paw, and it's uh, and he's just kind of holding. It. And that shot of Chewie in the in the Force Awakens trailer, I swear to God, is taken directly out of that publicity photo. And I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean like photoshopped. I mean, they carefully friggin' staged this thing so that it looked the... I mean, the angle of the camera was even the exact same. And I thought, oh my god. I mean, if you're going to that pornographic level of detail to wring that extra little bit of nostalgia out of the fans, what the fuck are we in for? I mean, you know, I didn't actually... I I thought the movie looked kind of interesting. I thought, well, I'll probably see it opening weekend. I didn't really pay a whole lot of attention to the movie really beyond that. No, I'm actually a, I, just that one little moment in the trailer. I'm actually I'm a, a little bit concerned about about the viability of this movie now, and it feels like I'm yeah. the lone voice. Until I brought the subject up with you, it felt like I was kind of the lone voice <laughs> in the wilderness on this. I, I didn't even want to talk about it on my show because, I mean, it feels like every time I open my mouth about something, I either get this floodgate of people who are almost like repeating the same thing that I'm saying like right back to me which all due respect right. to my listeners <laughs> guys uh, you got to give me something here um, the other thing is just this abuse that, that that I might sometimes get like the Superman 2 thing comes to mind I mean my god the things people were saying right and you know now I'm going to be taking sides against this too yeah. I, I don't know man that's a little bit risky so I don't I don't know Oh, believe me, believe me, you're you're speaking my language. I know exactly what you were talking about because, you know, it, it's it's the internet, it's the Facebook age that we are living in. There is no middle ground. You know, it's it's love everything or hate everything, and God forbid that you mistakenly voice an opinion that puts you on the opposite side of everyone else. And, uh, you know, the, the, the best example I can give you to this day is, you know, in, in one of our very earliest episodes of Two True Freaks, we, uh, we did a review of, um, of The Dark Knight. Yeah. And 
I was just completely honest in my opinions that I think it's a, I just don't think it's a good movie. And you'd have thought that I had murdered the Pope or something. I mean, people went apeshit and I was called an idiot and a moron and every, I mean, everything you can think of just for voicing my honest opinion. And it wouldn't have bothered me so much except that we were right out of the gate with our show. We were brand new. And so it's, I think in a lot of ways, I think we've had a much tougher uphill battle gaining listenership and respectability than a lot of other podcasts probably do because right out of the gate, so many people just clicked us off in disgust and dismissed us as, oh, who wants to listen to these assholes? They didn't like Dark Knight. And we got a lot of that. I mean, a lot of it. But, you know, over time, I've come, kind of come to the philosophy, and you know, and this is what I encourage you of, is, you know, you, you, you still, at the end of the day, you're the one you've got to live mm-hmm. with. You know, you, you've got to be honest with yourself. So, you know, are, are you going to feel better being honest, saying what you, what you mean and standing behind it, even if it means taking shit from people that disagree with you, or are you going to keep your mouth shut to make the peace, but inside it's going to gnaw you that you're not being completely honest, you know, and, and voicing what you really believe? And, and believe me, for me, that's that's a daily ongoing debate. There's so much shit I'd love to go, you know, on the Internet or in a podcast or whatever and really blow my stack about things. And some of it I do and, and a lot of it I don't. And it's, it's picking those battles, yeah. you know. But when it came to this particular one, just because it's Star Wars, and Star Wars got me here, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, at the end of the day, for all my love of Superman and Star Trek and everything else that I'm into, it's Star Wars. It's sitting in that movie theater in 1977 and seeing that movie and having my life completely changed that got me where I am right now. And so it means that much to me. And so I can't keep quiet about it when I see something like this that sets off my spidey sense. And it's been, I mean, it's been buzzing like crazy since this whole ball started rolling. And and one of the big things, and you know, again, I. I, I'm always afraid this sounds so big-headed when I say this, but I'm just being honest. You know, Chris Honeywell and I wrote sequels to Star mm. Wars after Return of the Jedi came out when we were like 15 and 16 years yeah. old. And in those sequels, you know, you have to remember this was long before the EU and all that. In the sequels that we wrote as teenagers, the... Star Warriors, you know, Han, Leia, Chewie, and all them, they were fighting the remnants of the Empire, because what the hell else were they going to fight, you know? And we weren't, I guess, clever enough to really come up with a new threat, so it was what was left. They They were doing mopping up action. Now, here we are, 40 years later, and unless I'm wrong kind of looks like this with that's what this is all about there's a new darth vaderish character and stormtroopers you know i don't want to see that it's one of the major reasons i couldn't get into the eu because been there done that 
in my opinion, at the end of Return of the Jedi, wars won. We, you know, the good guys won. We have the big Ewok feast. We all eat turkey legs and everybody lives happily ever after. So if that happily ever after is now going to get turned on its ear, it better be for a good fucking reason. Not just because, oh, you know, the Empire managed to regroup and now they're a threat again. I don't want to see that, you know? Well... I just don't. I don't, yeah, I mean, I don't blame you. And, like, I guess, like, from a realistic standpoint, there were... There were holdouts from uh, the Empire of Japan, you know, after uh, the Emperor uh, signed... That wasn't an that was not an armistice, was it? That was just full on surrender, right? Right. There were still hardliners that were that were oh, holding sure. out, and they lasted, I want to say, like ten years. But here's what you got to remember: they were splinter groups. They were these tiny little pockets of resistance. You know, it was not a major armed conflict. And my firm opinion is that you know, yeah, you're you'd probably have. Uh, like, what would you think? Like, maybe five or ten years of some type of token resistance? But basically, this rebellion is now a revolution, and they won. Right. And so, right. I think it might actually be kind of interesting if, you know, the galaxy far, far away were to become a little bit more of, like, a Wild West type of place. And, you know, just simply because of the breakdown of central government, you know, what do people do now? And... So, you know, and one of the other things, though, was that I, and I feel like we're just, we're, we're just not going to get this in the, in the movie, but I get the idea that what we're going to see, at least at some point, is evidence that nobody really understood what the prequels were all about. Because I'm guessing that at some point, mark my words on this, at some point, some director is going to come in and reestablish the Jedi Council, in spite of the fact that, that all of Episodes 1, 2, and 3 were kind of in, uh, meant to show us, you know what? The Jedi Council, the sheer existence of it, is a bad fucking idea. You know? That's kind of the dramatic thrust of the prequels. At least, no, that's not the only thing they do, but that's one of the things that they do, right? And... It just kind of feels like all of this is going to get sort of washed away in this sort of fanboy wankery. Instead of really developing a story in a logical direction, I think the Wild West thing is actually as defensible as anything else, and it's certainly a hell of a lot more entertaining than yet another conflict with the Empire, with yet another super weapon up against yet another Sith Lord. You know, I mean, right. look, I'm not saying that I can come up with a with, with this badass idea for an Episode Seven myself. But I'm not the one making the fucking movie now, am I? I'm not the one that that presumes that I can right. do the job. They are. And as you say, I mean, I read a lot of those EU books, and it just felt like you can only read so many stories of the New Republic turning back yet another uh, imperial right. remnant uprising before you're just like, God, dude, just find another thread, please. You know, learn a new song. And I get it, you know, George Lucas covered so many things in uh, just in the original trilogy. Then you get into the prequels, he covered even more ground. Um, what's left? I mean, how can you introduce anything that's not in some way or another derivative of that which has come before? And if it's not, if you can come up with something that's truly unique and original to Star Wars, 
how is that not going to... How, how are you going to, I guess, craft that in a way that still fits what Star Wars is all about? And, mm -hmm. again, I'm not saying I can do it myself, but I'm not the one that's getting paid to do it. So I feel like I'm within my rights to question things a little bit. I'm not trying to be a critic. I'm just saying that we all need to be asking ourselves these questions, and I'm not naming names because I don't want anyone to feel like they're being singled out, but it, it kind of feels like there's really not a whole lot of objectivity that's going on here. I agree. I absolutely agree. And uh, it, it, it makes me nervous because there is every possibility that what's going on is remake on the sly. Mm -hmm. Oh. You know, not not necessarily a, a fully admitted and, and fully realized remake of Star Wars, but because of this desire to go back to the original trilogy and, and re-examine it and all that, that it could kind of come down to doing that in, in a form of emulation, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that, that sort of non-remake, remake-sequel, non-sequel type, yeah, Ugh, fuck. My real fear is this. I'm just going to put it out there. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But we've seen all of this Darth Vader iconography in uh, the uh, trilogy and in leaked artwork. Not the trilogy, I'm sorry. Um, the trailers and then in, you know, uh, conceptual artwork that's been released online and all this stuff. How likely is it that they're going to bring Darth Vader back? I think pretty likely. And I really don't want to see that. Well, I don't either, but when the title of the thing was released, The Force Awakens, I kind of started wondering. So, I don't know. Well, you know, my buddy uh, Scott Rifen has taken to calling Darth Vader... Disney's newest princess and you know, when he first started doing that I, I thought he was just you know just trying to make a joke but I can tell you you know as a, as a guy who, who lives and works at, at Walt Disney World he ain't far off because the forefront face of Star Wars now that that Disney is the parent company is Darth mm -hmm. Vader and so in that aspect, he, he's right. And I'm not sure how I feel about that, because as a kid, to me, the face of Star Wars was R2 and 3PO. And now, you know, it, they, have, they have been supplanted by, by Vader. Well, you know, going forward from the point where we are in the timeline, Vader's mm -hmm. dead. And to me should remain so but if he's really the face and and he represents the you know the star wars saga to people you know to the the uh average moviegoer then that almost uh mandates that he has to come back in some form and yeah i i think that's i think that's a big mistake now if he ends up being just, you know, the the influence on the new villain or whatever, then, eh, you know, I guess I could live with that. But I don't want to see it where, you know, I don't even want to see it where it's a new villain and they just take the mantle 
you know, and, and adopt the look. I, I really don't. I, I really don't want to see that because I'm with you. After all the years of the of the EU, and then they scraped that away to just do the same thing the EU was doing in the first place, which was you know every couple of years, new Sith Lord, you know, new you know new Jedi thing that they have to do. Yeah, can we can we go in a different direction? Well, I. Speaking, I guess, like speaking of different directions, um, this is going somewhere. I promise. Have you ever heard of Alistair Crowley? Do you know who that is? Is that the the guy that uh, used to go into trances and talk about Atlantis and all? Is, am I thinking I, of the right I, guy? I, that sounds more like Edgar Casey. Edgar Casey. That's who I'm thinking of. Sorry. Yeah. Well, Al- Alistair Crowley. He was basically this, uh, I don't wizard. I guess. Um, basically, I, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say full-on Satanist, but he did a lot of rituals and supposedly conjured some really scary shit, right? Like stuff you don't want to fuck with, right? And mm-hmm. he's been, um, I don't know if it's if it's just uh, I don't, like a hipster thing or what, but it, it, he's been sort of an inspiration to a lot of people who are into, like, like witchcraft and whatnot, like people who do like real magic. He's like their he. Uh, he's like the founder of the feast, right? And it kind of made me wonder, mm-hmm. you know, what if in a new Star Wars movie, Darth Vader has that sort of reputation? You know, maybe it's not commonly known that he was Anakin Skywalker and he died a hero. What if his legacy now is basically the same as Aleister Crowley's? And you have this new generation cropping up that are, I guess, trying to emulate everything that he was thought to have stood for. Although, you know, if you watch Return of the Jedi, you know, again, he, Darth Vader died a hero, sacrificed himself, but, you know, that may not be commonly known. And I thought, you know, that might be an interesting way to sort of pay tribute to Vader and still tell an original story. It's just, again... The, the the impression that I've got is that if it doesn't happen in The Force Awakens, it's going to happen at some point very soon. You know, um, the prequels have kind of made Star Wars all about Darth Vader, and it's I, I just kind of see it as it, it may very well be inevitable. But I mean, if you have to have some kind of Vaderism in Episode Seven, you know, having him be sort of on the same level that we regard uh, Alistair Crowley today. I don't know. That's maybe not a bad way of doing it. I don't know. It's no. I I think that idea has merit because one of the and I am by no means an EU expert. Um, as a matter of fact, it's uh, it's somewhat ironic that I was just starting to really fully delve into the EU for the first time uh, just shortly before they uh, they wiped it away, but. One of the things I, I found very interesting in what I was reading was this idea that there was a faction that was that was around that I guess was beginning to, to gain prominence or whatever that had come to kind of resent uh, certain characters of say Luke and Han's generation. You know, the the guys that had defeated the Empire. Mm-hmm. They, this younger generation had come to really resent them 
because of the state that the galaxy was in, in in these novels that I was reading, to them was so bad, and it was so bad because it was directly attributable to the fact that the rebels had overthrown the empire. And so these younger people hadn't actually lived during that time, but to their opinion, looking back on it and, and you know, looking at how things were, they're like, you know, well, at least the Empire kept the trains running on time yeah. kind of thing. And so they were very resentful of the, the, you know, these people that everyone else was holding up as heroes. They were looking at them more as you guys were a bunch of asshole terrorists that led us into where we're at today. I actually found that very interesting. I, wh whichever author or team of authors came up with that idea, now there's an original idea that I thought, hey, that's really interesting. How would it play in Star Wars if there were people that looked at Luke and the gang that way, that they were not heroes, that they were actually terrorists, that they were actually... Um, you know, the, the cause for the decay of, of the galaxy that was actually, despite all its evil, being held together by Palpatine and the Emperor, you know, the, the Empire. If they're going to play it that way, I could be on board for that because that, that idea has a lot of merit to it. And that might actually be the way that they're going anyway because I mean I know precious little of the story details of what's going to happen with this I have made every effort to stay the hell away from spoilers on this but even you know unless you go off to live in you know the arctic circle or a deserted island these days just by the nature of what we do with podcasting and the internet and everything else you, you can't mm -hmm. avoid it somebody always ends up spoiling something so by just by by bits and pieces that i have seen it kind of looks like maybe our heroes are in some sort of exile or something so maybe maybe that is the direction that they're going to take this and and as i say if if that is then i won't say i'm completely on board but i'm intrigued i'm a, i'm a hell of a lot more intrigued by that idea than just, you know, like I say, a mopping up action or somehow the, the Empire has reformed and they're stronger than ever and we have to battle them all over again. I don't care about that story. I don't either. Um, and just one other thing, and then after that, uh, uh, I will let you go. The um, <laughs> There was somebody, it, it was like a blog post. It was, I don't know, it was something. But basically somebody floated this idea. I know you're not a big EU guy, but are you at least familiar with the concept of that new Jedi Order series? I think that's new Jedi Order. I'm trying to remember if that's one I read or not. Where, where I was when I was reading it was I had just read the, I think it was called Legacy of the Force, the one where Han and Leia's oldest boy had fallen to the dark side and then they had to take him down and all that. I read that and I was just starting on whatever the next series was, but I can't remember what the name of it was. It might have been New Jedi Order. I can't remember. Well, um, like chronologically, New Jedi Order uh, takes place before that. And, um, oh, okay. All right. No, no, no I had uh, read it's that. It's basically this extra galactic alien species. All of their technology is based on living organisms. They invade... Oh yeah, yeah, okay, and yeah. 
this blog post suggested that Palpatine knew this was going to happen. At some point in the fairly distant future, they were coming. And when they did, they were coming for blood. And so what he did was he he uh, set up this whole Clone War thing. He established the Empire, did all in his power, basically to prepare the galaxy, militarize it, so that they would be in a position to uh, turn the Yuzhan Vong invasion back. And... It's actually suggested a few times in, uh, you know, in the New Jedi Order uh, series. They may not have been as successful against the Empire as they were against the New Republic. If uh, the Empire had been there and they had a couple of Death Stars under their belt, things might have gone a little bit differently. And that was, right. you know, that was, and you know, this whole idea of like cloned soldiers and all these other things, they would be able to match. The, just the raw firepower that the Yuzhan Vong, you know, were bringing, and stand a much better chance of, of not only surviving, but actually protecting all of their territory in the process. And I thought that was that was an amazing friggin' idea. And that was one of the few things that, you know, I thought if something like that could be arranged, again for you know this the sequel trilogy that seems inevitable, there was some kind of an. It doesn't have to be the Yuzhan Vong necessarily, but it can be some extragalactic race of people that are uh, basically just bent on raising hell and tearing shit up. They now want uh, the galaxy far, far away. And you, there maybe there was a sort of a method to Palpatine's madness. I mean, yeah, a shitload of people died, but ultimately there was a purpose to it or just or whatever you know uh you don't necessarily need to redeem palpatine's character or anything like that but you can at least uh it, it's an opportunity to tell a different type of story than anything that we've seen up to now it's just anyway whatever i'm bullshitting so um <laughs> no i you know I, I you know the last thing i want to do is is poo poo anybody's ideas but I can't help but point out Ben Dunn. Ben Dunn a couple of times because that very first... Uh, well, you know, of course, what you're talking about with, with New Jedi Order, but also that very first uh, post-Return of the Jedi book, you know, as far as the timeline goes, was... Um, ah, shit, what was the name of that thing? It was the one where there was the what were they called like the she oh, yeah, she yeah, yeah, yeah. or something I, like yeah. that the the dinosaur people. Yeah, they were weird. God, what they the hell like, was the name of that? Trusipakura, I think. Yeah, was there the were name these weird Gorn type things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and so there was that, and then in the uh, in the original Marvel comics run, uh, you know, once they got past Return of the Jedi. Uh, they had to do something to keep the series going, so they came up with a couple of different races that were, you know, that were coming in to to present a new threat. And at least one of them, if I if I'm remembering properly, I think they were said to be outside of the, you know, from outside the galaxy, much like the uh, the guys that you're talking about. So I don't I don't know. I mean. I guess it has potential still, depending on how they do it, but it has been done. So, I, I don't know. I mean, that's the thing. You know, as you said, I, I don't have any magic answers either. You know, as a matter of fact, 
I think it's episode three. I could be wrong, but Chris and I, you know, Chris Honeywell and I tackled this subject as one of our very first episodes of Two True Freaks. I want to say it was our third episode, if I'm remembering properly. And we just did an episode called, uh, you know, what if there was a Star Wars episode seven, never imagining that there would actually be one (laughs) one day. You know, we were just spitballing ideas, you know, (laughs) and one of the conclusions that we came to at the end of the episode is that I'm out of ideas. I don't know what the hell you could possibly make episode seven about. We freely admitted that, but we also said that, you know, I would like to believe that the reason that movies like this work so well is that the people that are making them are a hell of a lot smarter than me. So I'd still like to believe that. I, I still want these people to perform a miracle, essentially, at the end of the day by by pulling it off and making something that I totally was not expecting. And I guess that's why I get irritated when it looks like it's shaping up to be something I've already imagined, you know, whether it be remnants of the Empire or an outside force or a new Sith Lord or whatever. Been there, done that. I I really want them to perform a miracle. Give me something brand new I wasn't expecting that feels like Star Wars. How's that for a tall fucking order, right? I mean, that's that's a big one. But that's what I want. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, um, I think I've uh, probably used up enough of your time today. Uh, two and a half hours. Not bad. So um, <laughs> why don't you tell everybody where they can find you? Right over there. No. Uh, <laughs> if you go to uh, Uh I am involved in, in many of the shows that we have up on the network. Um, growing up Star Wars, um, Star Trek Monthly Monday that may or may not be going, undergoing a name change here pretty soon. Uh, Comics Monthly Monday, Earning My There's Ears. A, yeah, that one's which, one of my uh, favorites. Yeah. a new show. Oh, thank you very much. I, it, that one's a, 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 pas- a project of passion because... Uh, yeah, I really, really enjoy doing that one. And uh, as often as I can possibly get around to it, uh, I appear with my buddies Paul and Bill over on Back to the Bins where we just talk about old funny books. And Michael Bailey and I, uh, as a matter of fact, just hours ago, recorded a brand new episode of uh, Tales of the Justice Society of America. We are intent on getting back on schedule on that. Uh, But as often as we can, we are putting out new episodes of that. And we are deep into our coverage of Crisis on Infinite Earths. And I think that's everything that I can remember off the top of my head. As far as earning my ears is concerned, uh, I can't help but think... You know, like the really early primitive beginnings of it, it was in a, of all things, it was in a, uh, an episode of uh, Star Trek uh, Monthly Monday, uh, number mm-hmm. 24. I guess I've actually got to, luckily I actually happened to be near the right section in, my, in uh, iTunes, right? And uh, mm-hmm. Star Trek Monthly Monday, number 24, this is episode 145. You actually have this little digression in uh, the middle of it with uh, with uh, Chris talking about at the time it was your new job and then you the two of you sort right. of branched out a little bit from there into just general Disney stuff and look I freely admit I, I'm bringing a lot of them like just of my own emotional sort of baggage to that uh, you know things were looking kind of shitty for me at the time and so it was kind of fun to listen to you know you talk about things you know working out okay for you 
But, you know, I mean, that was one of the great, like, podcast tangents I've ever heard anybody go on. And I remember thinking, you know what, this could, something, not this, but something, something like this could be its own, its own little show. And I bet you money, it would be awesome, (laughs) you know? And indeed it is. So, anyway, for those of you who aren't listening, you know, guys, you need to listen. I I know Jack nothing about earning, uh, about uh, Disney. But earning my ears kind of clues you into it a little bit as they go along, and it's always worth listening to. So anyway, I really appreciate that. Uh, like I say, it's a, it's a project of passion, and uh, I, I hope we've ma- managed to to capture and maintain that same feeling of just a, a tangential conversation. Because the fun thing with that is, for the most part, Scott and I don't really do any prep or necessarily any homework. We're kind of testing each other on our own knowledge of the inner workings and all that and, and you know the history and whatever else we're talking about. It's meant to be just a an off-the-top-of-the-head, free-flowing conversation about all things Disney. So I, I, I hope that we've managed to, uh, to capture that same flavor for you. But I'm, I'm having a ball doing that. It's the show I've been wanting to do for ages and... Uh, just waiting for the, the the right time and the right podcasting uh, partner for that. Right, and let's face it, they, you know, it's funny that you know, uh, Disney is such a. It's already so geek oriented to begin with, but not just anybody's qualified to be a co-host on that. You know, so it's interesting. Yeah. So, well, either way, now, Scott knows his stuff. Yeah, he, he really does. In a, in a lot of ways, he knows a lot more about it than I do, just because he's been coming that much longer. Yeah, and it, and it's just tons of fun to listen to. So. Thank you again for uh, joining in, even though I'm sick and still a little stopped up and everything. really appreciate you taking the time to uh, uh, join me today. Now, as to next week, I'm going rejo- uh, to be rejoined by a different Two True Freak so that we can talk about another, another uh, entry in the uh, Big Book Report series. So I've you know, got that coming up next week. And so for right now, I think that's everything. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. We are out. Well, I appreciate you inviting me anytime. I always have a, a fun uh, time talking to you. And this was a blast. We were all over the map. I like those conversations. think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook 
just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing, and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demanzacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs> <laughs>